play the opening. Good morning, everyone, or good evening, or good afternoon, wherever you may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition by the Saints Preservers, as my grandmother used to say, live from the Land of Enchantment in northern New Mexico. Tonight, we're going to be doing something interesting because there have been new developments in obviously one of the stories that we have been following, which is the moon. And believe me, it is a major new set of developments following a series of developments over the last several weeks. Um, I had noticed several months ago a very peculiar pattern, and that is that all the major governments, the three major governments of planet Earth, namely the United States, the former Soviet Union, Russia, and China, have been able to land uh, both human spacecraft, that's the uh, Apollo program, and unmanned robotic spacecraft, that's the former Soviet and current Chinese space programs, successfully, repeatedly, a number of times in several different places on the moon. Um, When the Soviets realized that they could not beat us at Apollo, As you may or may not remember, they tried in uh, 1969 to send Luna 15 to the moon to scoop up a sample and race back to Earth and basically deliver a sample of lunar material to Soviet laboratories before the Apollo astronauts got home. And, of course, they didn't make it because the, uh, the Luna 15 spacecraft just before the Apollo uh, 11 spacecraft landed, when, they, when the Russians tried to land it, it crashed. So apart from certain major three-nation uh, issues, I mean, NASA had unmanned spacecraft failures as well, the, 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 the space program going to the moon of the big three has been extraordinarily successful, including... Uh, NASA being able to send, you know, um, astronauts to and from the lunar surface without a single fatality. Now, that's not counting the uh, uh, fellows that that died on the pad in 67 or the spacecraft that uh, uh, were not used at the end of the Apollo program. Since then, there was this long, very, very lengthy hiatus where nobody, no nation, certainly no private group because the technology didn't exist, um, tried to send anything to the moon, even though it's our nearest celestial body. And then a few years ago, we began, we meaning the big three, to send spacecraft back to the moon into lunar orbit. And then uh, there were great discussions about sending uh, unmanned spacecraft 
back down to the surface of the moon. Um, the NASA people have pre preferred to remain in lunar orbit, the LRO, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is a big unmanned robot, has been orbiting the moon now since 2009. The only other spacecraft, which was launched by the AIMS Research Center called La Crosse, uh, it was aimed for a collision by a two-spacecraft ensemble to crash into the south pole of the moon, very large area, and the second spacecraft photographed the impact of the first, learned about uh, elemental composition and molecular composition from the dust and volatiles that were spewed up by the uh, impacting explosion of the uh, Centaur rocket. But NASA has not tried to land an unmanned spacecraft on the moon since the surveyor days, which was back in the uh, uh, mid to late 60s. The Chinese, beginning in 2013, tried their first unmanned lander, Chang-3, uh, on the front side of the moon, on the near side, the side that always faces the Earth. And then they tried another landing, um, uh, actually two landings on the far side, and those have all been successful. Uh, the Russians have not tried an unmanned landing since the 70s. The U.S. next unmanned landing is supposed to be a, a mission called Viper, which has been delayed at least a couple of times. And um, the other potential landings have been all by outside agencies and or governments. The Israelis collaborated with a nonprofit and spent about $100 million on a mission to land an unmanned spacecraft on the moon a couple, three years ago. It, um, the Japanese uh, tried a few days ago, literally on my birthday, to land an unmanned spacecraft on the moon, complete with a, uh, two little rovers, one from Japan and one from the United Arab Emirates, and it crashed. And I'm probably forgetting uh, something else. Oh, I, I think the Indians, you know, the Indian government tried to land at the South Pole uh, a couple years ago, and they crashed. And the two prospective unmanned landings that are kind of in the queue have been suddenly delayed with no obvious reasons given. So we will be discussing that uh, this evening with... Uh, our panelists, because we have a very interesting panel. So before we go much further, um, let me kind of introduce who our panelists are. We have Robert Morningstar with us tonight. Robert is a uh, civilian intelligence analyst. He's an investigative journalist. He's also a psychotherapist, and he currently lives in New York City. He does a tremendous amount of uh, work with computers, He's a private pilot. He's an expert in uh, Chinese language history and martial arts. And he's done all kinds of interesting things. In fact, he's a publisher editor of the UFO Spotlight and the UFO Digest. And he currently has his own radio show on Revolution Radio. And I'm sure he will tell me what the name of it is as soon as I bring him on, which is now. Robert, welcome to the other side of midnight.
Anyway, thank you for having me on the program. It's a pleasure to be here to talk about the moon and Mars, and I've seen some of the items on the menu. And uh, yes, it's a really a fantastic time in lunar exploration and terrestrial exploration by lunar entities. That's uh, my take on it. I think uh, I mentioned to wait, you... Wait, wait, wait. Back up, back up. What's that about lunar entities? Well, I believe the, the moon has been inhabited for a very long time, and that's one of the main reasons that the Apollo spy missions went there. They were all dressed up in uh, Mr. Science, uh, OG Wiz, is in Science Great, but they were all military spy missions uh, to, uh, to the moon. And it was because we were watching activity to and from the moon through the, from the 1950s onward. So I, uh, the, the cover story was a NASA, you know, Mr. Wizard uh, science mission, but really it was a, a, a very deep state military uh, excursion. We can talk about that later. Well, let's talk about it now because we're, we're going to yeah. also have Ron on. And okay. I believe Ruggiero is joining us uh, a little later on. And Tim Saunders, actually, from Turkey. He had a five-hour drive this morning to meet oh. a client, but he did promise that he would try to come on uh, maybe after the first hour. So, you know, when, when you're doing Skype calls to Turkey, you you never know. So we, we will see. So, okay, let's go back to the idea that lunar entities have been on the moon for a long time. Mm-hmm. Do you have any ideas who they may be and what their objectives are? Well, you know, I think you'd get a really good idea of who the U.S. and Japan thought they were. Back in 1957, they made a movie called The Mysterians, which I went to see three times. And that movie was the first one to broach the subject, not only of of the planting of robotic machinery in the Earth, but also lunar excursions to Earth to abduct Earth women. So the abduction phenomenon was revealed in 1957, and it was kept secret here for another uh, 1957. Actually, the first case I know of is back in 1945 in California. Was it? Well, we we know about the Mount Shasta stories, but... No, 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 no. This this was an army sergeant who disappeared in the desert and they found his body later, I believe. Oh, that's a bit later than 45. That's uh, Richard uh, Sergeant Richard Lavelle at Holloman Air Force Base. That's a really terrible story. If you want, I'll recount it. No, no, thank you. <laughs> Not right now. But do you, remember, do you remember? I thought it was interesting because back when, um, uh, oh, what's her name? Um, Linda Moulton Howe was yeah. very deeply into abductions, and she you know, wrote a book about cattle mutilations and all of that. And, and, and I spent some time with her in Denver, um, she was very much on the case of abductions, and I was uh, uh, interested that this case, this sergeant, seemed to precede by many years. I thought it was the 40s. Um, no, it was in the early 50s, and his name was Richard Lovett. So it was the early, but it was after before 57. So yeah. it, it was the first one that we know of, right? Yes, but that was that was really secret. It was really locked up in Project Blue Book. But that's one of them. No, there have been, you know what the, honestly, this is going to blow your mind. My first uh, recorded 
alien abduction and uh, what do they call it? Um, the Alien Love Bite. That's a book by Eve Lorgren about how aliens come and intrude in people's love lives and change their nature, change their gender, make them fall in love with the wrong people, fall in love out of love with other people. But Midsummer Night's Dream by Shakespeare is a classic alien abduction, except they call them fairies, Oberon and Puck and mystifying people, luring them. So it really goes back a, a, a much farther centuries than, uh, you know, than we in modern times are willing to admit. But the, um, the other problem is that while they talk about animal mutilations, there are human abductions and human mutilations that show exactly the same kind. Well, this was why I was intrigued with this story out of Holloman, because it had to do with mutilation. Yeah, it did. You know, human well, mutilation, obviously yeah. you can't mutilate it human unless you abduct them so that was one of the cases that linda was working on and i was fascinated by how early it was which i thought it was the 40s it turns out to be early 50s but that's the same kind of cultural era right exactly uh but since you mentioned linda i just want to mention my first item linda molten howell jim mars and i and a couple of other people are in a movie by uh Prism, Prism Pictures, Prism Productions. Okay. And by Sabella Claire's item number one, you can see it for free. And it's in a series called ETs Among Us. And this one is called UFOs, the CIA, and the Assassination of John F. Kennedy, or JFK. Oh, I, and, oh, I, I see. Uh, what's your name? Uh, Sibella is the, the executive producer. Yeah, Sibella is a. She's an excellent filmmaker. The film is going to be shown at the Paris Film Festival and in the Toronto International Women's Film Festival uh, next month. Well, she did, she did a film with me many, 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 many months ago, and yep. this may be the one that I'm in. No, you're not in this one. You're in the one about the Alaska Pyramid. And I oh, posted okay, that. Okay. The last show that we did, I posted it as a surprise for you so people... Uh, should be able to backtrack uh, to the last live show that we did, and it's in there. It's uh, the Alaska Pyramid is the one. Uh, she okay. said you were excellent, and we were talking about it, so I put it on the show that night. Well, this one is about John F. Kennedy's experiences with UFOs going back to World War II when he was stationed in Guadalcanal. And I found out that the people of Guadalcanal have been harassed and killed and abducted by something they called the dragonfish. These brilliant lights that would come out of the sea and go into the highlands, the mountains of Guadalcanal, or go from the mountains down into the sea. And fishermen who went there exploring, trying to figure out what the dragonfish was, uh, were often burned, sometimes killed, and sometimes just didn't come back. So I believe that uh, President Kennedy being on a spy boat, the PT boats were not attack craft. They were really stealth spy uh, craft in that region trying to locate what was called the Tokyo Express. This was a, a fleet of uh, ships that would come under guard with uh, logistic uh, support for the Japanese troops that were island hopping in the South Pacific. So I believe that President Kennedy uh, being uh, astute and a good observer and knowing the people of Guadalcanal must have heard or could have heard about the dragonfish, may have been warned about venturing into its uh, habitat, and that the curiosity about UFOs and JFK may have gone to back to personal experiences 
in Guadalcanal in World War II. Then he was briefed in 1947, two days after the Roswell crash. He was on an airplane from Boston to, uh, to Washington, and he was briefed by a staff member of the Secretary of the Air Force, whose name was Stuart Symington. Years later, I met the governor of Arizona, who was uh, in, in the office when the Phoenix lights went by. I met him in Washington, and his name was Fife Symington. He was also a U.S. Air Force veteran, and I asked him if he was the son of Stuart Symington. He said, no, he was my uncle. But the important thing about Fife Symington's uh, account, personal account to me, he saw it. And he said, Robert, you know how wide the New York Times is, right? He said, you're, you're from New York. I said, sure. It's really wide. He says, well, Robert, if you took the New York Times and stretched it out, both pages, put it over your head, it, the, the Phoenix spacecraft was wider than the New York Times held at arm's length above your head. Oh, it was a couple of miles across. Yes, exactly, exactly. So to get back to the, the film, President Kennedy throughout his time in the Congress and in the Senate was demanding information about the UFO or flying saucers, as they called them in the 1950s. He was also part of uh, NICAP. He was uh, one of the contacts for um, Major Kehoe and uh, NICAP. And that was the Navy group that was trying to get disclosure way back in mid-1950s because the Navy has been trying to tell the people the truth about UFOs since since their discovery, and it was a turf war. It was a turf war between Army Air Force. It was a turf war between Army Air Force, which was split into Army and Air Force in 1947 at the time that the deep state was uh, created. Well, that was the whole Truman. Yeah, that of Truman, the- and to in order to keep secret the UFO crashes that happened at Roswell, at Kinman, Arizona, and most importantly in Aztec, Arizona, March 15th of 1948. I like to tell people every item, your computer items on your desk right now, and the little door that pops open with the DVD or the CD-ROM, all of that is described in the report on the recovery of the Aztec. Yeah, wasn't it a guy named William Bill something or other who wrote that book? Oh, oh researcher. Oh, oh, that UFO was, uh, crash at Aztec was the name of the book. Yes, right. Uh, and I well, talked to him several times, even though I was supposedly not doing UFOs. There was at that time, I think there was uh, Frank Edwards was around, and there was uh, Gray Baker. What and... was his name? William? No, it wasn't William. But you know, I'll, I'll look it up in a little while. The important thing about that is that that crash was witnessed by a lot of people, including oil prospectors. And one of the prospectors' name was Silas Newton. I remember that. Right. Well, Newton came out publicly saying that he'd seen it and that it had crashed and the Army recovered it. And I have uh, have documents, uh, MJ-12 documents, that say that the the CIA went after him really big time, and they framed him. Uh, for fraud and uh, deceiving investors because he claimed that he had developed technology to detect oil underground. So they used that uh, in order to uh, bring him to trial in in a kangaroo court and 
they convicted him, and that's how they silenced him. And they, the, the item, the documents that I have from uh, Majestic Documents, I recommend that life site to anyone who wants to know mm. about the documents. We are the far afield of the moon, Robert. Well, I want to uh, go back to lunar entities. Okay, lunar entities. Okay, if, if there's that, somebody hostile mm-hmm. and alien on the moon, mm-hmm. why did they let Apollo land? Well, not once, not twice, but six times. Because certain countries in, on this planet, not all of them, have contact with them, and they have negotiated landing rights. I've told you that I consider the existence of something called LGA, the same call letters as LaGuardia Airport. But LGA for me stands for Lunar Governing Authority. And without their permission, you cannot land on the moon. Just now, as do we have do we have any evidence or documentation? Well, the evidence we have of the alien assistance for us to get to the moon comes from the German scientists Hermann Oberth and a couple of others who said. Hi, we Dave, had, can you hear me? Yeah, I, hi, I you. think that's Hold Ron. On. That's Ron. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's me. Okay, we'll get you in a minute, Ron. Go ahead, Ron. Okay. Ron. I'll sort it out. Let me get my headset. Okay. <laughs> Ron also said we'd had help, and so I take that at face value. But in 1959... You can't Robert, Robert, stop. You can't take anything of this at face value. Give me a break. Gosh. Give you a break. There's You're no taking... such thing as face value ET evidence of interactions. Or... If you've got it, or... show it to me. I believe the word. Um, I don't believe anybody. Well, I know. That's because you're a skeptic, but you're willing to I'm believe. I'm not a skeptic. I'm a scientist. I go by evidence. Just show me evidence. Well, don't, I had. Don't show me uh, people I, who claim. Show me well, evidence. Okay, just silence for a moment. In 1959, Jesse Wilson, an astronomer in New Jersey, was observing the moon, and he saw 34 UFOs rising up. And the Taurus looked for balance, and he took photographs. I heard about them in 1959 because it was announced on the radio. And my friend and I waited for days to see them on television, and they never emerged. But 45 Well, 59 was the dark ages of ufology after the Robertson sure. panel in 54 and the CIA basically screwing with everybody. That's right, and they're, still doing it. and they're still doing it. So this is just a big... Well, they're trying story. to. They're not Look, being very successful. They painted themselves into a corner with 75 years of lying, and now they know, don't know how to extricate themselves from it. And they're trying to start a new era of ufology by calling it UAP. We can, about can, can we stay on topic, please? Well, okay. The moon. You have Jesse said Wilson, lunar Jesse, entities. Jesse Wilson took photographs of 34 craft rising from the moon's surface. And almost 50 years later, I found the photograph in secret documents that were in Blue Book. I, I acquired the Blue Book archives from the United States Air Force. And as I went through there, I found Jesse Wilson's photograph. So those were the Mysterians. They've been coming and going. They've had bases. They have underground bases on the moon. You and say all this like it's proven. It's not. <laughs> And I go back to the first premise in war, do not let the enemy get the high ground. So again, back to why were we allowed to land on the moon if there's somebody already there? 
United States government made a secret treaty, a pact. How do you make search? a secret treaty with gods who could blow you away what with a switch? Gods? That's, a, that's a real trip, Richard. You think they are gods. No, I think their technology you is just God-like. Said you just said God. And you didn't say I'm, use, I'm using it you with worship. a... Just, I'm, you know, I, you, Robert, stop. Take a, deep, take, a deep take a deep breath. Take a deep breath. No, I don't. I just... You worship I am you just... I'm just... I'm, I'm, I'm using... Air. Worship the technology. Robert, the why are we arguing? Because you don't let a person finish the sentence. I've let That's, you finish multiple sentences. You just have to make sense. I make a lot of sense. Claiming the moon is inhabited without hard evidence is not scientific. Well, listen, in a couple of minutes, you're going to start talking about the dome on the moon, and I'm going to ask you, who made that? And I don't have to know because I don't have the libraries at my disposal yet. Oh, libraries. The libraries where? On the moon? There's no proof that there are libraries on the moon, Richard. Come on. You've been hypothesizing about libraries on the moon and secret archives and bringing uh, archives down and turning pictures from 50,000 years ago into JPEGs now. That's all BS, Richard. No, it isn't. Not at all. Yes, it is. Robert, I do not accuse you of BS. Please be respectful. I am going to be respectful as long as you remain respectful. I'm just asking for your evidence. You make a claim. The moon is inhabited. Show me the evidence. There are photographs. There are videos, especially in recent years. As a matter of fact, Bruce Sees All is a video that's on my list there. And if uh, the listeners care to listen to other people's evidence, he's got videos of UFOs coming off the moon, flying over the moon. Robert, UFOs flying around the moon does not mean they live there. It means they may be like us visiting or using it as an observation post. Or a recon center. Or Richard, your objection, your objection is a red herring. No, it's We've not. Seen is rising. There are videos of them coming out of underground uh, caverns. Again, no, it makes not. a great base. It doesn't mean they live there. The only well, reason for aliens to be on the moon, or ETs, which is probably more appropriate, is for observing us. If, you're, if, 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 if you have a chattel civilization under observation the last thing you want to do is let them get close and land i don't care about negotiation to be negotiated there's got to be something of equal value that both sides exchange when you're dealing with the equivalent of superman you don't tug on his cape you don't spit into the wind and you certainly don't or can't make a deal because they have more power than you do and deals even among humans with power turn out to be bad when the two sides are unequal, let alone how unequal ETs versus humans would be. Well, that's why Truman and Eisenhower had to kowtow to them because we had no power. So it wasn't a negotiation. It was an ultimatum, you're saying. Well, of course, it was an ultimatum. Well, then that's use proper language. Well, the ultimatum was we're here to land, we're here to settle on the earth. And Einstein and uh, Oppenheimer suggested to Truman that the best uh, course was to draw up a secret treaty, either through the United States government and or the United Nations, to give them settlement rights. Which which really is a a secret capitulation, according to your statement. Yes, and their, their, uh, their excuse was that they had to buy time while we developed our technology to be able to counter them. 
So Einstein and Oppenheimer recommended that they develop, and this MJ-12 was born. Two minutes. That they needed to um, make a, a deal, but to keep it secret from the world public. And then in 1954, there were two meetings between Eisenhower and this extraterrestrial entity. And in the first one, they demanded that we get rid of all nuclear weapons. And Eisenhower refused because he realized that nuclear weapons were the only defense that we had against their technology. And in the second meeting, which occurred at Kirkland Air Force Base, where the treaty was signed, ranging rights, settlement rights, and exchange of technology, alien technology for human resources was uh, agreed to. Okay, uh, we are at the bottom of the hour, so we're going to pause. My guest this morning, my first guest, my first rather argumentative guest (laughs) is Robert Morningstar. We we do this a lot, back and forth, back and forth. I mean, look, I've read all these stories. I am tired of stories. I want evidence. Now, to put the record straight, I have seen contemporary videos shot by amateur astronomers from Earth, which do in fact show extraordinary aerial craft maneuvering in very strange ways around the moon does not mean they live there, that they are inhabitants. They, I believe, are as much visitors observing us as we are visitors and maybe visitors again. And that's, of course, the subject of our program. Because in the last several years, nobody except for the Chinese have been able to successfully land on the moon with unmanned spacecraft. All other efforts, and we'll get into this in detail in the second half hour, when Tim Saunders is going to join us, all those efforts are going to come to naught if, in fact, maybe, just maybe, there's someone else, shall we say, occupying the moon. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 
33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, May 20th, to the other side of midnight. My guest this morning so far is uh, Robert Morningstar, and we're having a very lively debate at some level on who are occupants, who are visitors, who are aliens, who are ETs, and what have they been doing with Earth for a very long time. And again, if, as Charles Ford said, we are property, my question, Robert, is how come anybody let their property, their cattle, their uh, chattels do such extraordinary things as land on their own satellite, not once, not twice, but six times, and do nothing to uh, intercept what their mission was, which I think was in part to bring back some artifacts that were left by whoever had been on the moon a long time previous. Well, first of all, I don't think that we are anyone's chattel. And humans have an instinct for independence and free thinking and curiosity. So curiosity, I think, is a a prime directive and got us to the moon because we needed to find out what was going on on the surface of the moon. And, of course, in order to find that out, we had to send human eyeballs up there. Robotics are, are not enough. You have to see it with the human eyes and the human brain and analyzing. So that was the main reason. Uh, There is one group of extraterrestrials that looks upon us as chattel, and there's another group that looks upon us as brothers and and siblings. So to make a long story short, one group is described as being reptilian and exploitative, and the other one is described as the tall whites, who are more human-like and somewhat more humane, but very tough, very tough uh, individuals. So they traded off a base on Earth. There are aliens living on Earth at S4, at Area 51. And they've been there since the 1950s. So those are, quote-unquote, the good guys, the white hats, the tall So you're saying we're basically involved in some kind of war and we've got allies and enemies out there yes if, if you look at the if you watch the video uh of the um ufo cia and the jfk assassination uh linda moulton Howell quotes jim mars saying that world war ii was an intergalactic war an extraterrestrial war fought with human bodies and i think that's that's very telling and very accurate as a matter of fact when you read um well, it, 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 when, when you when you read Billy Mitchell, you know the the um, uh, Swiss farmer, the one-armed Swiss farmer who had all those. Bill Myers, Myers. Billy Myers. Billy Mitchell, the bomber, pilot. Yeah, yeah, Billy yeah. Myers. What what yeah. I what I'm intrigued with is 
when I got the original German notes and had them translated, the Nazi overtones of his mm-hmm. exchanges with the Pleiadians were overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So I can put Linda's comment in context that, mm-hmm. yes, there are folks out there that basically taught the Nazis everything they thought right. they knew. Yeah, now those are not the tall whites. The Pleiadians. I didn't say that. Book. I said no, I know, Pleiadians. But I'm saying, agreeing with you. I'm agreeing with you. There's one disturbing thing about the Billy Meyer contact, and that's the name Only of the one. Well, the main one for me is all those it, Egyptian references, which are crap. No, no, no. The name, the name given to him by the uh, pilot of the UFO, the first one that he met. Said, well, there were there were several. There were Semyasi and Semyasi. Well, and you know who Semyasi is? Yeah, it's all part of Egyptian mythology. Suppose no, it's not Egyptian. It's not Egyptian. Semyasi is no, not Sumerian. Sumerian. No, Semyasi is the name of the fallen angel, the one of the Watchers, who organized the rebellion of the Watchers against God, and they are the ones that went in onto women and hybridized, engineered the Nephilim. Semiyaza and Hang on, Ron, Ron, let me do this properly. Let me introduce this mysterious voice out of the wilderness. Ron Gerbron is with okay. us. Um, let me turn up your game just a bit because you and Robert are not equal in game. And uh, he is our resident generalist. Tonight he's going to talk a bit about Mars with some interesting new images. So, Robert, go right ahead. Uh, Ron, Ron, right ahead. Yeah, I can't avoid a good argument. No, 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 I'm not going to step, step in, but the uh, semi-Aussie, that's... You already have. Come on. It's a small point. If you're going to say that you have a credentialed answer for yes, something, I do. then, you know, don't be scared of it. I mean, that's that's all. The, the alien... You interrupted me as I was going to tell you who Semiyaza is and remains. Semiyaza. Okay, as long as you don't think she's an Egyptian, go ahead. Yeah. I didn't say he was Egyptian. Richard said he was Egyptian. It's not I'm a he, it's a she. And the photograph it's... and the photograph of Semyaza, yeah, who who Meyer published in his book, turned out to be some model from I think yeah. Las Vegas. That's right. That's yeah, right. But the name not get I into the it. pronouns of Sumerians. Yeah, okay. My <laughs> point is the name and it's Go ahead, right. Robert. Sorry. Semiyaza and Azazel were the two principal fallen angels of the Watchers who organized the rebellion, who decided to take women and create a, a hybrid angelic human race and created the giants, the Nephilim. And that is told in both versions of the Book of Enoch, the Slavonian and the Ethiopian. And that's what makes me suspicious of this particular group that contacted Billy Meyer. Yeah, the so-called Pleiadians. The so-called Pleiadians. Because uh, they're Nazis space. through and through. That's right. That's right. And that's why Jim Mars wrote the book, The Fourth Reich, because apparently the Nazis had made contact with a certain race that downloaded uh, technology, actually gave them an intact craft, the Haunabu. Well, this goes back to your comment about Linda, because I really can see her perspective that World War II is kind of like a prologue, like an opening act to the real war we're still immersed in, which I think is galactic, and we're a pawn on one side. Yes, pawn, bishop, rook, it's a chess game. I was going to quote... um, But we are not free agents, and if someone 
allowed us to land on the moon. My point tonight, if I can kind of return to the theme of what we're going to talk about, nobody else is being allowed to land on the moon. That's my point. Because Russia, China, and the United States are the only countries that have made contact with these race and only ones that have negotiated landing rights. Or, or, or the Russians, the Chinese, and the Americans know the secret of landing safely on the moon, which mainly is don't hit the dome. Yeah. And everybody else is kept in the dark, so they're assuming it's a naked, airless little world, and they mm-hmm. send their little robotic computer-driven spacecraft down, and the last one crashed you know, like uh, 30, 40 feet above the surface, the Japanese claim, but they claim it under very bizarre circumstances because they're the guys with the technology that can land on the moon automatically, like the Chinese, like all the others. All the technology is the same. Nobody has an advantage in this technology anymore. Back in the 70s or 60s, yes, not now. But what's Mm -hmm. interesting is that the guys that are not in the club they don't make it, only the big three, Russia, yeah. China, and us, have been allowed, mm-hmm. maybe, to land on the moon, or we know enough to know how to avoid the glass on the way down. I have another theory. That the I have facts. I have data, not theory. I'm tired theory. of theory. Theory. No, it's There's not. No, what you just, no, Richard, what you no, just said was theory. No, it's well that's not it's what it's based on. Can you please down. stop talking over me? Gosh. When I'm on your show, I will follow your lead. When you're on my okay. show, please follow mine. Thank okay. you. So my point is, ring bell. My, my point is that between these two theories, that we're being shot down or the private guys are being shot down and the big guys Mm -hmm. are being allowed or the big guys know what's there and the hazards to avoid on the way down, which is all the damn glass and the private guys are not allowed in and they haven't fought beyond the end of the envelope. So they have no idea there's an impediment. Now they may be beginning to because two private groups with autonomous robotic landers have suddenly announced they're postponing their efforts to land. Maybe they figured out there's an unknown environmental factor that they need to research before their plans can succeed. That's kind of like the foundation of our conversation tonight. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's important is because future man missions, like uh, like if you go to my items in radio with pictures let me tell everybody who's new because we have a lot of new listeners how to get there you go to the other side of midnight.com you click on tonight's banner which says rather dramatically uh let me read it here why have all private efforts to soft land robots on the moon and mars failed click on that banner that will take you to the guest page click on my name under the guest page banner And that will take you to my items. Number one, NASA announced yesterday that they have picked Blue Origin together with Lockheed, um, Honey, 
uh, B Robotics and the Draper Labs, which is out of MIT, to build a duplicate lander system in addition to SpaceX, which was selected last year to build a lander for the Artemis program. And they laid out in a two-hour uh, presentation at NASA headquarters with Bill Nelson, who's the current head of NASA, the administrator, their plans for the Blue Origin lander. And they're talking about many test flights in the next few years before they submit the lander with humans to land on the moon. My question is, if they don't know what's waiting for them, will their landings in preparation for testing their lander, will they come up a cropper like the current unmanned landings that are not in the club? I doubt that it's going to be successful if they're only giving it one year to prepare this lander. No, 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 no. I didn't say that. No. No, I, I didn't say it. I'm saying it. I'm saying it. This but, is odd. To but, me. but they're not. The, the, the Blue Origin lander is supposed to be targeted for 2029, and the mm-hmm. incredibly snail pace of the Artemis program, which will only mm-hmm. be the fifth landing, a fifth mission of Artemis, and only the third landing in 2029. So- well, it, which weren't they saying they were going to go in 2024? That's, that's that SpaceX. That's, that's Elon Musk. And Elon Musk is going to do all his testing of the Starship in Earth orbit. And I don't know whether he plans any unmanned tests on the moon. So he, when is the Artemis land, first Artemis landing supposed to be made? 2025. Hmm. Because they have no money. I said right. this to a friend of mine last night. Uh, He said, what? I said, yeah, they're being starved to death. They're talking. Nelson announced yesterday at this press conference, one Artemis landing per year. And the astronauts initially are only going to stay two or three days, just like Apollo, and then come home. We're basically trying to do the moon on the cheap because Congress Mm -hmm. thinks that other things have much higher priority. And frankly, what that means is it's going to be up to Musk and the Starship and that technology, which is very important because you need other players in the game in order to keep the game honest. Then the question comes down to, is Musk, given that he's part of Artemis, with the lander for the Artemis program, if he lands, if he sends his own astronauts to the moon separately and tries to land separately, Will he be successful? That's one of the key questions. Yes, it is. I'd like to go uh, back Richard, to you. Uh, wait, I'm hearing. Okay, is that Ron? Sorry, yeah, Ron wants to say yeah. something. Yeah, I just wanted to say something about protocols, because I was thinking of a friend of mine I used to know. He was working under grant money on some – it was biological stuff, but he was uh, – I kept asking him every time I saw him, this is Mark, uh, you finished with that genome yet? And he goes, nope, not even close. And that, that was his standard answer because as soon as he was done, the project would stop, the grant money would stop. And that's exactly what Artemis is doing. They're trying to string it out so they can keep feeding them some grant money. As far as the Elon doing part of something for them, that's wait, the Wait, Jap- wait, wait, Ron, that makes no sense. Let me finish and I'll be done. It, because it makes trying, no sense. Stop. To- Stop. Stop spreading misinformation. That's I not, can't help it. That's it's not true. true. No, it's not. 
the contracts do not end when they develop the successful lander. The co- they have to develop future landers. They have to develop. I didn't say it re- did. You just said they were drawing it out to draw out the money. Every year they have to go before and justify what they're doing. And so the less work they can get done during a given track period, the more the money is useful to them. And you just already said they're underfunded. But the cap to the thing is because you, you were about to step off a, a diving board on this bit with M- Elon Musk making something relative to their project. That's the Japanese Zaibatsu concept. It's like if you bought a tape recorder back in the 70s, you didn't know who actually put it together. You knew whose brand name was on the outside. They would trade work with each other because they, one would have a factory optimized to do a certain thing, and the other guys would use it. They do it with their cars, too. Ron, we can, don't can, normally can, do that can, can in the I U.S. Do, I, I'm going to correct the record because this has nothing to do with Japan. SpaceX is the prime contractor to NASA. I didn't. SpaceX is the prime contractor to NASA for the lander part of the Artemis landing on the moon series of missions being planned. There are NASA, there are NASA overseers and managers throughout that contract. They aren't just buying Mm -hmm. a pig in a poke. They're not saying to to, uh, Musk, okay, give us a lander. And then they accept it, you know, with a bright shiny ribbon and a key. They are intimately involved, NASA is, in building the lander. It will, there will be no unknown parts, no unknown suppliers, no unknown anything. It will be as thoroughly NASA overseen as the Blue Origins contract or Lockheed Martin and the others during Apollo and Boeing and North American and all that. They're just kind of changing the labels, but anything to qualify for a human spaceflight rating goes through an extraordinary layered bureaucratic checking process at NASA, which is why, you know, Starship can be created by Musk for 45 times less money than NASA has put into Artemis so far. All true. I I wasn't arguing with any of that. Well, I'm not quite sure why you brought the Japanese in, because they have nothing to do with... Because they are a real world, not aliens, not not from videos on YouTube. They are a real world (laughs) example of an industrial complex, which has various different independent commercial suppliers that will trade parts of projects across the street in order to get the work done more efficiently. Yeah, but we do that it's here. It's part of their structure. It's we, not part of ours. Yes, it is. for NASA. Y- yes, it is. Except for NASA. Well, we're only Where? talking about NASA. All right? So, apples and oranges. Well, and so, let me, let yeah, me go. Let me, let, me, look, let, me, let me move this conversation, which is very <laughs> um, bumpy, into the next level. If you look at my item number two, the Chinese, after... Musk tried to launch his Starship on his first test flight, which had a rather spectacular explosive ending. Richard, that's not item number two. That's item number two is tornadoes. You must mean something you have to else. Re, have to refresh. Number five. Refresh. Okay. It's number two. All right. I'm looking at it. Okay. Anyway, the Chinese published very curiously a frame-by-frame analysis of Musk's first rather spectacular 
successful slash unsuccessful Starship launch. And they came to some very interesting conclusions. Why have I put that as number two? Because as Nelson said yesterday, we are in a space race with the Chinese. And we are. But the stakes are so much higher than the space race with the Soviets, i.e. the Russians, because the stakes now are for all the technology waiting from ETs on the moon for the nation to arrive first and begin to find it, as well as the libraries. Mm -hmm. And it was very interesting that Nelson made a really strong point that in this kind of loose race between us and China, Robert, he he said, we have to be first. Now, given that both, you know, nation states have comparable technology, given that they have comparable training and technical background and and, uh, managerial expertise and all that, and the Chinese have been very successful with their current unmanned landings, I'm kind of intrigued why he's really upset if the Chinese want to land on the moon first, because we've already done that historically. No matter what the Chinese do, they can never undo historically our precedents. So then the question arises, the Chinese do land and they do identify alien technology, architecture, libraries, working machines, whatever. Will they allow us to land? And is that what Nelson, in a very Emily Dickinson fashion, is really trying to say? Because otherwise, who cares whether the Chinese land on the moon now ahead of us because we're opening a whole new frontier, which is the South Pole. Yeah. Why is that a new frontier? I would just, hold on a second. I would just like to say, as far as the frame-by-frame analysis of the Starship failure, I noticed that seven of those uh, rockets in in the... uh, and the launch vehicle failed on the way up. So it in, started in out of thirty-three, seven did not ignite. Yes. Yes. And and, and I have a close-up showing, which I was debating whether to put up as the yeah. image for number two or not. Do we know? Do you know why those seven engines uh, were not working on the way up? You know what my instinct is. I don't want. I want evidence. Interference. Interference. Something well, it could be a malfunction, but seven out of uh, the, the whole circumference and all of them to fail in sequence to create asymmetrical thrust, which would create incredible vibration, which ultimately destroyed it. Okay, according but, to the Chinese. Remember, do you remember the Amos 6 satellite that was on the launch pad and, and Musk was supposed to send that up and a UFO went by and Badoom, the satellite blew up? Well, the whole spacecraft blew up, the rocket and the and the satellite, yeah. No, 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 most, it was just the satellite. The rocket stood standing, and there was a fire. But a UFO went by, and that technology can interfere with electronics. All right, let me, let me go back to the Chinese. The Chinese okay. looked at the video, which everybody can look at. It's all over YouTube. And their claim was that the problem was with the vector control system, which for those people that aren't rocket nerds, you simply swivel the engines. All those engines, well, most of them, can be swiveled on the super uh, heavy booster 
that's launching Starship. And the fact that seven engines were dark, and you can look up the back end and see this incredible photograph of the engines lighting and the engines not. If you looked at the pad at launch, Musk and his engineers made a catastrophic uh, misanalysis of what was going to happen pad when they launched this monster because it had millions of pounds of thrust, something like 16 million pounds of thrust, which is larger than any rocket ever launched except for the Russian N1, which didn't work back in the 70s, um, currently you know, being tested today. And what it did, if you look at the close-up images of the launch pad in Texas, it destroyed the launch pad. It tossed concrete over a mile away from the launch pad. What happened is because Musk and his engineers, for some cockamamie reason, did not build a conventional water-doused system of, of right. sound suppression like at Cape Canaveral, Mm-hmm. He tried to launch from like a three-legged stool. It's got more legs than three, but I forget how many. And the, the, the thrust, you know, 18 million, 19, what, the number varies, as you'll see in a minute, uh, just tore up the concrete and the pad and threw up all that debris into the engines. I'm astonished so that it only took out seven because each of those engines – has to be moved hydraulically. Well, how do you move an engine, a rocket engine, with hydraulics? It's got to be on pivots, and there are hoses carrying hydraulic fluid to the engines. And if you lose hydraulic fluid, in other words, if the shrapnel from the liftoff, you know, Mm -hmm. simply struck and cut those hoses, of course you Mm -hmm. lost vector control. And it probably took out the fuel lines, which is why the engines went dark. It's a huge problem that Musk, for some god-awful reason, made for himself, which raises another conspiratorial point that we're going to get to when we come back. My guests this morning so far are Robert Morningstar and Ron Gerbron, and we're having what would be called a very lively conversation about evidence and agendas and players. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, 
you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to this Saturday night edition of The Other Side of Midnight. We're playing break music tonight, by the way, from George Powell's famous, amazingly perceptive film, Destination Moon, with script written by Robert Heinlein, which, except for a couple of details, like the folks that went to the moon were private enterprise corporations, and the way they went to the moon it was with an atomic rocket, turned out otherwise to be very technically accurate with the music written by um, Leif Stevens. Okay, back to our conversation. Uh, where did I leave off? Who was, who was waiting in the wings? We were talking about China and I wanted to say about proof, proof of uh, adaptation. Well, I was talking about Musk and the fact that you know, they basically shot themselves in the foot, and, yeah. they're, and they're now claiming, I mean, any engineer, in fact, I had people sending me emails for months ahead of that launch, actually about a year. Music uh, It can't be. Okay, okay. there we are. Uh, thank you. That's bizarre. Why is that? That should not be playing. More gremlins, and there's no Mercury retrograde. Anyway, uh, where was I? So, so Musk was warned, you know, like a year ago, that what he was doing, which is basically a, a you know, a high stool, uh, was not going to work. And they had to have what's called a flame trench and a flame deflector and lots of water and, and you know, like, like at the Cape. And they didn't yeah. do that. So he basically sabotaged his own boosters and therefore bought him time. Mm-hmm. I want to raise the question. Suppose that was not an accident, given how overall the Musk SpaceX program is is the work of genius. Suppose it was deliberate because Musk has basically been told you're not going to send tourists to the moon until Artemis, until the official moon mission. And this is one way to keep him from taking his tourists to the moon. I think that's an interesting idea. Sabotaged himself. That's yeah. what I just said. Well, you know what's interesting? Uh, I found it incongruous that when the whole thing blew up, everybody started cheering like they had succeeded in the mission. Remember that? Well, they did. The look, getting, like, getting, getting that, getting. Look, I don't know whether you're old enough to to remember the Atlas test and all the other rocket tests in the fifties yeah. and sixties. Every single rocket multiple times would blow up. 
and they get like a foot above the pad or they get a mile above the pad or they would tilt in a weird angle. As I said on the program several nights ago, the thing that struck me about this, the heavy launch of Starship is it made it off the pad, and now we know under extraordinary circumstances, it made it to almost 30 miles, and the only reason it blew up is because they sent the command signal to blow the damn thing up when it refused to stage, and it began doing this slow, incredible tumble over and over again, 30 miles in the air over the Gulf of Mexico and staying intact. The fact that it stayed intact under drastically extraordinary catastrophic circumstances tells me that the basic design, the basic, you know, equipment, the basic, you know, assembly, everything worked except they didn't launch it and therefore he shot himself in the foot, and I'm wondering if it was to plausibly buy time so that Artemis can go first. No, I don't buy that. Why not? I think he did it all. The, I think he did it for. I think he did it on purpose. I'm saying he did it on purpose. No, I'm, you're not. Yes, I am. I'm saying he did it for a reason, a delay reason, and I'm saying it for a completely different reason. Which that is? That thruster is what? Four, well, that, the thrust out of there, what's that, four times that hang on, Saturn V? Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. huge thing. Hang I'm on, hang on. I'm trying to give you my answer. Hang, no, don't give me your answer yet. Hang on. There is, there is programming here, okay? I have to find the right uh, – where there we are, okay? Go to item number three, all right? This is the Raptor engine, which is a key part of the whole uh, super heavy booster and Starship design. Let me read to you. This is from, uh, let me see who wrote this, Benzinga, okay? Story by Anand Ashraf uh, this past Monday. SpaceX CEO Elon Musk announced on Saturday that the combined power of Starship's multiple Raptor engines will generate a thrust of 19.5 million pounds. There is your answer. He is so deeply in the club, you can't even see his posterior. It's all part of a mythological, you know, um, mystical, uh, occult ritual. It's a ritual. Come on, 19.5 million pounds? Give me a break. Which means, well, why not? Which means we can't trust anything they say. Nothing. Everything is coded. Yep. Um, I'd like to return. I like, I like to Robert's answer better. Yeah. I'd like to return to my eyes for a moment with regard to. Uh, wait, 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 wait. Ron just said, said something. He said he liked your answer better. What was your answer, Robert? I may I, have I missed it. I said that it was all coded. I'm talking before coded. that. No, no, it was a coded remark that I was responding to. Oh, okay. okay. This is all It's like a – let me try one, Robert. It's like putting a sticker on your laptop. It indicates your your proclivities. It doesn't necessarily mean anything more than that. See, I don't buy most of the ritualistic stuff. I think they do that to impress the the general public or to act like, to wait, maybe wait, impress wait, wait, wait. somebody on the, the inside and public, say, no, I think it's the, all a bunch of fluff. 
The general public know nothing about 19.5. Nothing. So who are they impressing? 19 to 19.5 does show up in all sorts of algebra uh, onto the most advanced physics. And so it's, it's something that any mathematician would chuckle at. Wouldn't matter if there was mythology connected to it or not. They'd go, wow, there it is again. That's all. You know, the metaphor uh, for it is the 42 that um, uh, the um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy had, but it's, uh, you know, the actual number. There's 19. There's, well, there's a bunch of them. You know, Richard. There's 33. Yeah. There's that. There's, there's even the legendary. I think 15. we're arguing <clears throat> over something that's a distinction without a difference. Right. You know, the fact that he is stunned in Twitter that his rocket engine can produce 19.5 million pounds of thrust is is a signal that he's part of the, the in crowd and he yeah. will be following protocol. He's not going to yeah. go off the reservation. And that's why I think mm. he sabotaged his own launch because his all-up testing is really very valuable. And the fact that the damn thing worked despite the horrendous conditions of the launch, I guarantee you the next launch will work without, without a hitch. That's all. You but, do know that part of his... Oh, God. You do know that part of his his method all the time is to test things to destruction. Yeah, but but you don't create a launch pad. Don't do that. You don't create a launch pad with deliberate sabotage, okay, which he did. No, that was a boo-boo. That was a boo-boo. That's That's not a boo-boo. This is not an Edsel. It's not like this is He wasn't planning on destroying the pad. He was planning on destroying the rocket. The pad was unable to take it. A lot of times construction people tell you that their stuff is sturdier than it is. I don't know what the backstory was on that, but yep. I guarantee you he spent more time worrying about the gimbals on the engine <clears throat> than he did about the mix of the concrete. That's there were all. all kinds of warnings about the pad design before the launch, like over a year ago. I can show you my emails. And the fact that experts, no, I believe you. The experts were telling him it's not going to work, and he insists on doing it anyway – He's a genius engineer. Look at what SpaceX has done under his management. All right, forget Twitter, but look at SpaceX. SpaceX is an absolute golden example of doing the right thing the right way at the right time and achieving things that nobody else has achieved. The idea you would build Mm -hmm. a disposable launch pad that would sabotage your first stage by kicking up all kinds of debris some of which, if it didn't hit the rocket, would go a mile away, is nuts, particularly when you've got decade after decade after decade of Air Force and NASA experience, to say nothing of the Germans and other folks, of launching big rockets needing flame trenches and a huge amount of sound suppression to prevent what happened from happening. They're not that dumb at SpaceX. So he gave them the order, do it this way, and when they said why, he just said, I'm the, I'm the boss, do it this way, and I'm telling you there's a hidden agenda because it was a dumb rookie, rookie, rookie mistake. Can we go back okay. to the moon and <laughs> habitation? Well, yeah, let you me... were going to talk about the moon, Richard. Go ahead and talk about the moon. I kind of intend to. So item number four. Hmm. On my birthday, which of course was totally coincidental, the Japanese tried to launch an unmanned lander, and they crashed. Within tens of feet of the landing, they crashed. Now, they claim they ran out of fuel. 
all right? And I kind of believed them because they had all those, you know, screens like the Indians did so that everybody could, you know, who knew what they were looking at could kind of see the readings. Why would a robotically programmed unmanned lender in a realm where every aspect of the physics is known to the 10th decimal place, why would they run out of fuel trying to land on the moon? How could that happen? Anybody want a wild guess? They landed in a hole. No. Meters versus yards. Mm, that's, that's a good one, Keith, but that's not it, okay? Mm-hmm. How do you land on the moon with an automatic computer system? You have to know where you are, right? Above the moon. You have to have height information, right? How nobody's responding, so I presume I would say I would say that it's possible that they were coming on down in an area where they miscalculated the gravitational pull. No, 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 no. Those are like point zero one feet difference between mass guns and all that. No. The gravity on the moon to land is pretty much exactly what it is all over, except when you get down to the real ultimate decimal points. The way they all these unmanned landings and Apollo determined how to land was by use of radar, okay? The radar is critical because the assumption in the radar is that you're bouncing your radar signal off the surface, right? Yes. Right. What if the radar is bouncing around in an echo chamber and there is a delay and the computer interprets the delay because it assumes, of course, the speed of light is not changing, that the delay is because the target is farther away than it really is. And it will then burn more fuel to get to the imaginary target when, in fact, you know, things are closer than appear in the mirror, that kind of thing. No, Mm -hmm. I'm saying that the dome, the radar reflections of the Japanese and other landers, including the Indians, to, to monitor the final stages of the landing so they meter out the fuel. I mean, have you noticed the uh, SpaceX return of their first stage on the barges, how they land, how incredibly yep. precise? That's all done with radar and computers and feedback loops with every parameter known. But if you're landing, you're, hang you're on. Invoking dome, you're invoking a dome that's not visible in the video that they're showing of the approach. Because you can't see it in the visible. It is so... All right, we have have no video, by the way, of the landing of the Japanese landers. The only video we have is from the Chinese. And the Chinese chose a different way to get to the moon than everybody else, uh, both before Apollo and since. They chose a vertical landing coming straight down. The Indians and the Japanese used a horizontal approach where you fly at low altitude across a good portion of the moon before you touch down. If you fly horizontally, the odds of hitting surviving glass is much higher than if you come down vertically. Out of all the unmanned landings tried with Surveyor back in the day, the only one that disappeared was Surveyor 4, 
which they tried to land vertically like the others, and it hit something. And we've gone through the telemetry and why I think that's plausible and all that. The density of the glass of the dome around the moon on the near side and the far side are probably different by, oh, a factor of a thousand. So you could land Apollo and the Russians could land their spacecraft most of the time successfully. But when you try to land near the poles and the Japanese were trying to land near the North Pole of the moon, the density of the glass on the near side is highest at the poles and diminishes drastically at the equator on the near side. And that's because... Richard, what's the resolution of that radar? I don't know off the top of my head. I mean, how much would it take to, for it to notice? Well, you'd have, to have a, that it's... you'd have to have a piece big enough to ping and enough reaction time to avoid it. I could go back right, and, and look something, at the... Something too small for that could still wreck the land. Absolutely, absolutely. But see, at that point, you're so landing... So it doesn't need to be a dome. It could just be any piece of rubble because nobody expected... No, but it has it to be rubble suspended in midair, the remen- remnants of the dome. Come on. It's, it's, well, if it's, it's glass... It's got a superstructure. We can see it on the photographs. In fact, let, let us go okay. to, let's go to number five, okay? I like independent evidence. On the left Good. is an Artemis color view. They put out some better imagery, Robert, uh, yeah. of the far side of the moon from the Orion spacecraft taken with a uh, uh, equivalent of a GoPro television camera. On the mm-hmm. right is the uh, image, one of the images from the South Korean uh, unmanned lunar mission which is currently in lunar orbit. And the only difference is one is black and white. The other is color. The right image, the Denuri image, the name of the spacecraft from the South Koreans is Denuri, which means enjoy moon. It was taken through a polarizing filter. The unique part about glass is that when you look at it with the right filter at the right polarizing angle, it will stand out like the proverbial sore thumb because light reflected from glass then becomes polarized depending upon the number of reflections it can be polarized up to like 50 60 70 percent if you're not looking at the glass with the right angle on the right polarizing filter you will see almost or essentially nothing but if you're looking at it at the right sun angle even with non-polarizing cameras you will see some backscatter, which is why you can see it in the left-hand image from Artemis and in the right-hand image from Denuri. But, of course, if people don't realize, you know, what they're looking at, there's no way they can understand that it, to, to land an unmanned spacecraft, automatically you have to land through a region that is either incredibly uh, sparse All the glass has been essentially eroded away, except for a trace, or you have to find a hole. And that, of course, is where the Malin camera and the South Korean mission and the multiple cameras looking at the South Pole and the North Pole with filtered images and the shadow cam and all that come in because they're taking preparations to land safely at the South Pole where the glass is much thicker than over any 
of the Apollo landing sites. By there, factors, is, there is a suggestion to support uh, your thesis of a very, very thin patina of substance. If you look at the Denuri photograph, and let's discuss it in terms of the clock. Look at it as a clock, 12, 6, 9, yep. and 3. Let's look at the, the uh, arc between 9 o'clock and 12 o'clock. And if you zoom in like I'm doing now, you see that there is a um, nebulosity, a structure above the bright. Above no, 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 the no, bright. no, 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 no. Sorry, Robert, that's not real. What is it? That is an artistic effect added by the South Koreans so that nobody would know they'd released an image of the glass. The actual Wait. dome is the white ring. The stuff above it is the background art that they put this image against, and I did not eliminate it because what that was... What the hell are they doing? That's really ridiculous. Because they're trying to, they're trying to obscure what they're doing. They're being Emily... <laughs> They're being Emily. They're being Emily Dickinson. They're publishing the truth, but they're not labeling it, and they're not making it easy. Because unless you know what's there, you'll look at the pieces on their website. And I published several links. I didn't do it tonight, but in previous shows, I've linked to the actual source imagery on the South Korean uh, webpage for Denuri, and you can see that they tried to pass this image off as a piece of art. And of course, nobody, no artist in their right mind would post an image of the moon, the near side of the moon, where the angle was such that the crater Copernicus, the 60 mile wide crater, bright in, right in the center of the disc, yeah. has moved 30 degrees from the left to the center because you can never see it that way from Earth. This is obviously a space image from Denuri en route to the moon taken somewhere between earth and moon after its launch last august with the polarimetric cameras in black and white and they posted it so that they had priority just like someday when everybody gets around to saying oh my god there's a dome around the moon well the south koreans are going to claim well we found it first photographs now why will they get away with it because way back in the Middle Ages, astronomers like Brahe and Kepler and others would publish what they saw in the sky, and they would scramble it in an anagram. They wouldn't publish it in the clear. They'd post it as an anagram because they were in a war against each other for who had published first. And it's always about publish or perish. So I yeah, think, but if you publish fakes, what good is it? It's not a fake. It's a real image posted. It's a real. It's a real image posted over a star field. Forget that. You know, you're supposed to be a civilian well, intelligence agent. Don't you know psyops when you see it? Well, I don't believe that this is a psyops. I do. And obviously, because at some point, they will admit. Well, then it must be true. This to the color no, I'm using I... evidence because we even have color from the South Koreans. And I've gone over this. I'm several... not opposed to the idea in principle, on principle, but you know, it's, it's you have to be fair. I am being fair. You know, okay. if I'd been unfair, I would have taken out the background noise, but I left it because you can go to the original website, <clears throat> South Koreans for Denuri. Google is your friend, 
And you will see this image mm-hmm. as part of their rotating, you know, puff piece PR campaign of rotating imagery to show what the South Korean space agency is doing. If this so they was, have a press office. Of course. You can't well, do this. Why not ask them the Because they will not, not respond. I had one of my colleagues. You don't know that. I had. I'm telling you, I've actually said it in previous weeks. We have tried to reach the South Koreans for a direct comment. They will not respond. And I'm not talking just to me. I'm talking to another astronomer who's in the club. Okay. Who basically said, um, you know, to them, hey, guys, what's up with so-and-so? And they have not replied. Well, I'll tell you, I accept the the, the Nuri as more real than the NASA. The NASA one is just razor-bladed, you know, to make a very smooth contour, no stars, nothing in the background. You can't see stars. That's not true. Yes, it is. It has to do do with something called camera camera latitude. If you, that used to be true, but the, now the cameras can. The moon is Robert, 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 hang on, hang on. The moon is lit by sunlight, right? Yes. It's equivalent to trying to take pictures of stars on a bright beach during the daytime because the stars are there in the sky. They're just obscured by the bright blue sky, which, of course, is noise. If you, if the analogy you, is not sound. The analogy is not sound. We're talking about the blackness of space in the background. You still can't and see I, something that's too faint to be recorded. I, I'm telling you, Richard, I have photographs from Apollo 17 of the moon in all its glory, and it can pick it picked up the stars in the background. You now have reason, wait, 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 you have you have I, a you have a photograph of the moon from Apollo 17 where you can many, see stars. Many of them. You're talking the about. Reason, hang on, hang on. I need to be clear. Yeah. You're looking at a photograph taken by Apollo 17 of the moon, yes. right? Yes. Yes. Is it a surface image or a no. orbital Orb- image? Orbital image. And you say you can see the moon lit by sunlight and stars in the same frame. Yes. Send it to me. I guarantee you it's not real. I guarantee you the it is The film latitude <laughs> was totally insufficient. Is it a color picture? Is it, is it, is it, That's your opinion. It's not. A, it's fact. It's laboratory dark room fact. In opinion. No, it's not. <laughs> then everything we say on the air is simply our opinion, and science be damned. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, science is not damned if it's good science. But the reason that NASA blacks out stars in all the Apollo pictures is that all the constellations are the same on the moon as they are here. And any anomaly, any luminous anomaly like UFOs or space stations that would appear would be easily discernible. So NASA's trick has always been to black out everything above the horizon. And they've done the same thing. They've done the same thing here. I have enhanced photographs where you can see the magic marker. You can see the magic marker where they went over it. And and Carl Wolf, who worked... uh, it, with those photographs, saw buildings with triangular tops and columnar buildings of the same height. And that's what I was trying to show you in my second photograph taken by a Chinese Chang'e 2 orbiter. It's one frame of 10 minutes of video that I've had since 2014. And I release it 
a frame at a time until the right time to comes to release the whole video, which I'm working on. But that's NASA's, NASA for 40 years magic marked the whole horizon and blacked out everything. And Again, are it, we talking orbital or surface imagery? Both. Both. Okay. We are, we are, by the way, at the bottom of the hour. So everybody hold it where they are. Well, this is a very interesting evening. I had not really thought that this would all be all that contentious. It's absolutely fascinating. Hmm. Okay. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Here's another cut from Destination Moon. We shall return. midnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side is midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, to this Saturday night edition of The Other Side of Midnight. It's about uh, <clears throat> half an hour till we uh, break into tomorrow morning, Sunday morning, here in the Land of Enchantment. My guests so far tonight, Robert Morningstar, who is in New York, and Ron Gerbron, who is in San Diego. And um, I don't know from Keith, I haven't gotten the hind sign yet. Do we have uh, Ron, uh, not Ron, but Tim yet? Because I saw a note before that, uh, excellent, excellent. So let me, uh, without further ado, bring on Tim Saunders, who is a very interesting individual. Let me get his bio so that I don't uh, butcher it. It's been a while since he has been on, and I don't want to make claims for him that are not valid. Uh, Tim is a British national who grew up near the south coast of the United Kingdom. He was very positively influenced by the nearby yachting and shipping scene, 
and ultimately chose his ideal career about at the age of 10 when he decided to become a yacht designer. Uh, Tim studied industrial design at the coveted Coventry University and is fortunate to have been chosen by many of the world's highly revered yacht design studios to work now in an array of projects of different sizes, styles, uses during what he affectionately calls his apprentice years. In 1999, Tim established his independent design studio and rapidly became involved in originating a new generation of super and mega yachts ranging in size from nine to 270 meter, that's from 30 feet to almost a thousand foot uh, length, which increased uh, positive notoriety among his designs while exhibiting his work at the Monaco Yacht Show and many other prestigious venues. Uh, Tim will see the launch of a 90 meter mega yacht and a 50 meter super sail yacht later this year. And he says, and I quote, it is very rewarding to breathe life into these innovative projects, which are ultimately positive reflections of each satisfied owner. Without further ado, Mr. Saunders, come on down. Tim? Need to unmute. Tim? Tim, Tim. His mic is still muted. I don't hear anyone. The worst thing is on air is dead air. Okay, we may be having a technical issue with Tim. Sometimes the mute button doesn't respond. You're clicking away at the mute button and it doesn't respond. So let's give him a little while to come on. Hey, Tim, when you come on, just break in and say, hey, I'm here. Well, we've given him the proper introduction, so if he can join us. Um, I, I, I did see earlier he was able to listen to it. He's in Turkey, and it's Erdogan's Turkey, so who knows what's going on with uh, the Internet there because they, they have an election coming up, so they've asked Twitter to censor the opposition, and God knows who else they're, they're interfering with. Um, so Tim will join us when he can. Okay, where do we want to pick up while we're waiting? Well, I still want to talk about Hiroshima and the former habitat. So you want to Remember, go back to... Yeah, I've got to, lots of pictures. You, well, yeah, no, we'll, we'll get to, to uh, uh, the moon shortly. I mean, Mars shortly. Yep. Um, okay, so you want to go to number two, Robert? Yes, I do. Okay, uh, go ahead. I said, there's, um, this is one frame from a Changi 2 video, which... The Chinese released in 2014, and uh, a good Australian shared it with me. And this is one frame of an area that I call Hiroshima on the moon. The interesting thing is that the Chinese went back to this place three times, morning, noon, and night, or near night. And this is sunset. If you look at it, what, I'm, uh, what I like about this photograph is it confirms Carl Wolf, Sergeant Carl Wolf, U.S. Air Force was working at Langley um, at an Andrews Air Force Base in the 1960s. And he had to go and repair a Xerox machine. And while he was repairing it over a couple of days time, the, the man who was doing the copying for CIA came over and showed him some pictures. 
And Carl Wolf said that he started to tremble when he saw the photographs because he saw photographs of buildings with triangular tops and others that were columnar in, in form and all of the same height. This picture from the Chang'e 2 uh, orbiter confirms what Carl Wolf saw. I'm sad to say that he passed away. He was hit by a tractor trailer about three years ago while riding a bike. But uh, I remember him and his testimony. He was one of the disclosure witnesses in Washington uh, with uh, Stephen Greer and Carol Rosen. So triangular top buildings are at the top of the picture. But for me, the most important element is in the lower center where you see a reversed E and a quadrangular shadowed area. So I, I dubbed this Hiroshima on the moon because this is what it reminded me of. In the center, you see two structures below. The, if you go to 12 o'clock on the picture, you'll see a big triangular top. And come straight down, you'll see two structures, one of which looks like a stadium with the St. Louis Arch coming out of it. And right next to it, uh, a structure that looks like a building uh, similar to uh, an egg crate. So I call it the egg crate hotel. But if you go through and study the regions, you will see that it has uh, geometry, rectilinearity, almost streets. In some of the devastated areas, you see right-angled, cornered blocks. So that's why I call this Hiroshima on the moon. And I'm happy to share it with you. Well, you know I've been looking at moon structures for decades and publishing. Yeah, Los Angeles moon. Do you know the area of the moon where the Chinese took this picture? Actually, I do. It took me uh, about two years to track it down. It's in the south, south southwest region near the Mare Oriental. Okay, that's Mare Oriental is at 19.5 south on the moon and 93 degrees uh, west longitude. So if it's near a Mare Oriental, it's somewhere close to the equator, within 20 degrees of the equator. Yeah. People can see Mare Oriental in, in picture number five, the blue picture on the left. Mare Oriental is at about four o'clock. Let me go look at number five. Oh, wait a minute. Number five is not clicking. Oh, I need to refresh. Well, the Nura, the Nura picture that we were looking at. And... Oh, oh, mine is. Yes. It's number two. Number. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let me go back. Sorry. Sorry. Not, yeah, my number five. Okay. Yeah, number five. Yeah. Um, and that's Ari Orientale, the big blue spot at about four o'clock. And that thing is really deep. Wait, 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 wait. No, 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 no. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ron, Mari- Robert, more. Ma- 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 Mari Oriental is nowhere near visible on this image. It's hidden on the horizon under the reflected glare of the dome. The dark spot, and it would be on the left side of the Denuri image because this is published straight up. The dark crater at the very top, the the black one, that's Plato. That's Mari Imbrium below it. The bay to the left with the... No, Richard, you got it all wrong. That's... The crater at the upper left, that's Tycho. This is no. Mare Orientale. Wait, let, 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 let us, let, let's go back to square one. We're looking let's at my number five. We're looking at yes. the right-hand image, the Denuri moon. Left, left side. What? 
the left side, the blue moon. I thought you said Denuri. No, you blue. said Denuri, okay. Opposite the Denuri. Okay, this <laughs> this is of the far side, the that's big right. object, the darker <laughs> with the multiple rings. That's Mari Oriental near the right hand right. edge of the moon. That's right. The rest of the moon is all the way on the far side, the back side, the side facing away from Earth all the time. In fact, you, right. can, you can see just at the very bottom edge on the left-hand limb, you can see that dark area with a little bright thing in the middle. That's Tsiolkovsky. That's on the far side of the moon almost. Yeah. Uh, all, well, it's certainly beyond the, the meridian that would be yeah. the anti-meridian. So, all right, now that we know which image we're looking at, and yes, you're looking at Oriental, that big multi-ring basin on the right, mm-hmm. and this gorgeous, you know, backscattering dome all around the moon's limb. What else do we look at on the image? Well, I was going to say it took me a long time, uh, but I proved that uh, NASA has been lying about the depth of the Mari Oriental. It's actually a, a huge entrance into the interior of the moon. No, it's not. Oh, yes, it no, is. No, it isn't. Robert, stop spouting but nonsense. You could fit, you could fit Mount Fuji. Who is the astronomer who, who has spent most of his career, including I, at NASA, I, looking I, at the damn moon? When's the last time you looked through a telescope that you're... You can't see Mari and Tal with a telescope. I'm not saying I did. It was analysis of photographs taken by the Japanese uh, orbiter and radio... Uh, radar telemetry that the Japanese did, and they showed that you could fit Mount Fuji. It's five kilometers deep, but others, the Chinese photographs, show that there are deep, deep wells, and NASA has a habit of making parking lots, the mares, especially the Mare Tranquilitatis which is a gouged out section. We talked about this before. Mare Tranquillitatis was site of a huge asteroid impact that threw all of the debris onto Mare Serenitatis. And they hid that for 50 years. What do you and mean? All, Nobody's hidden oh, anything. Oh, yes, they hid it. Not they for me. Something. Well, you didn't notice it. And you didn't what do you mean I didn't, I didn't notice so what? That the Mare are... Asteroid impact that's within the, the standard. specifically is a gouged out area on the front side of the moon below Mare Crisium. And I pointed that out when I discovered the color photograph that came out in 2018. And that's the first time that anybody could see that that thing is incredibly deep, cavernous, and that Mare Serenitatis is a heap of debris and there are different colors. Mare Serenitatis is an orange color because it's covered with all of the the sublunar material that was blown onto it. And NASA was making all the mares look like parking lots from 1960 to 2018. It's as simple as that. And they did the same thing with the Mare Oriental. I don't know what you mean by parking. You mean level and flat? Yeah, flat. They are level and flat. They're, oh God, Richard, you're disappointing me, man. I gave you the picture. I gave you the color photograph of the moon, and you're seeing Mari, Mari Tranquillitatis is flat? Yes, of course. Well, you're All the Mari are lava upwellings from inside. Whoa. 
telling you, that's NASA bullcrap. No, not. it is not. Yes, it is. Well, get the color picture. Obviously, given that you have an image that you're interpreting wrongly, doesn't mean that NASA has been the moon has been photographed now, and observed. NASA loved and hit everything from everyone, and now you're an advocate. No, for they NASA. have not. No, they've been very selective. They've done it with surgical precision, which is why nobody practically well, has figured out that they have been lying about certain key things, but not that, about basic structure of the moon. 180 degrees. For 40 years, you criticized NASA as occultists. Not uh, as a blank indictment. I'm yes, very specific. I am and, very specific. And you have changed... Now you're being a mouthpiece for the deep state <laughs> trying to ingratiate yourself with NASA and be a good guy when they had you on the blacklist. That's crazy. You are crazy. You are. Maybe the two of us are. But I say what I see, and what I see is accurate. Exactly. What you see is what you see. That's right. Well, that doesn't mean other people are seeing the same thing. That's because they don't see as well as I do. I have 20-20 vision and a 20-20 tongue. That's my problem. There are experts, and I'm now talking about amateurs, not professionals, all over the world, who for hundreds of years, beginning with Herschel forward, have been observing, drawing, and photographing the moon with every available technology. Most of that time it was film. Now it's CCDs, which have much better you know, latitude. You can record things that are a thousand times different in brightness. You can also stack the images. You can suppress noise. You can amplify signal. That's how you can see astonishing detail in amateur photographs now taken from the Earth with very modest telescopes, 14 inches, you know, 20 inches, not 200 inches uh, like, like the Palomar telescope or, you know, tens of feet, uh, hundreds of feet rather, like some of the other big telescopes. Um, those we don't get to see cool images of the moon from. But from the amateurs, you can see every detail because now you can, you can basically stack imagery and get rid of atmospheric obscuration and scintillation. And I wish I'd posted a close-up image taken by a, uh, a Mexican amateur named Carlos, Miguel Carlos. It is so stunning you can actually see the structures all around Plato in the so-called Apennine Mountains. Amazing detail. There is no huge empty fissure in Mare Tranquilitatis. It's a level lava field, but the colors, you're right about the sequence and the splash, but it's the colors that give it away because the colors basically on the near side are due to chemistry and geology of the lava's and the other materials, because the glass is almost gone. It's, it's like, like cigarette smoke. It's on the far side, where if you compare the Chinese imagery and the Artemis imagery, they are showing the same detail, and most of it is of the glass, not of the surface. Well, there's no glass over Mari Tranquilitatis, but you can look into it and see canyons, caverns, Ridges, hollows, and Mari Serenitatis has 
a ridge running right down the center, practically north and south. You mean, you, the, mean, you mean that bright ray? There's one ray. You can call it a ray right over Mars. Or in the yeah, and it goes from roughly north to south and south to north, right? Yeah. That's the, the glass. Way. That's the shattered glass of the dome. Now, how do I know that there's a dome there? Because the Apollo astronauts, when they were flying on Apollo 16, and it was Charlie Duke who made the comment, it was record- actually I heard it live, didn't know what it meant live. Years later, I you know looked at the transcripts and recordings and realized, oh my God, he sees it. Because he makes the comment on tape, broadcast live to the entire world. He says, John, he's talking, you know, John Young, who was the mission commander. He says, do you see those rays over Chrysium? Chrysium is one of the round lunar basins in the upper right-hand corner. You don't okay. see it on the Denuri image because it's too far over the right upper right-hand limb. Remember, that image was taken about 30 degrees to the left of the normal view from Earth. Anyway, they're orbiting the moon, and, and Charlie Duke says to John Young, mission commander, in the lunar module, as they're getting ready to land, he said, look at the rays over Chrysium. He said, it almost looks like they're suspended over the mare. Yeah. And, and then they went on to something else because the idea is so unbelievable, so shatteringly, paradigmically wrong that obviously he didn't have to believe himself. And then they got busy with other stuff. You can hear it on the recording. And then they never went back to the idea that the rays, the brightest, biggest rays, because of the shattered glass, like a bullet through a windshield, creating mm-hmm. a ray pattern that literally is parallactically visible. Mm-hmm. Now, what do I mean by that? Parallax is when you put your finger in front of your nose and you look at it with your left eye and your right eye, and you'll see it jumps back and forth. Right. As they were orbiting the moon at 2,000 miles an hour, only 60 miles up, the angle of their movement across the moon was so rapid that Charlie Duke was able, by the way, he's still with us. We might be able to talk to him and ask him to confirm. I I remember the comments. I remember reading it in the... It's on tape. I've actually put it on a graphic. Uh, And and there there is a point. Now, after the last show, when Barbara Honiger was on and talked about the, uh, the, the new kind of water that was found on the moon... And you talked about the 50% of the moon's surface is silica. It's made of glass. I had a vision of how this dome that you speak about could have been formed naturally. And it, ha- it works this way. An asteroid or huge meteor impact ruptures the surface of the moon, turning the surface into molten glass and throwing up all the water high up into the atmosphere, not the atmosphere, into the altitudes, where it would freeze instantly and create a partial dome made of heavy moon water and glass that froze instantly in the vacuum above the moon and might remain there, structurally connected to the surface and possibly in orbit. So that's my natural explanation of how a dome could have been formed. And it's now specifically the one you're talking about over Mare Crisium, because I do remember uh, Charlie Duke and others 
passing over, over other craters saying that it seemed like there was a half dome that you could see through. So there is some, there is some substance to our madness. Well, with all due respect, I don't buy that model for an instant. It will not work in terms of physics, in terms of geometry, in terms of planetary science, in terms of anything. So there, who does the dome? There is a multiple level dome around the entire, like, like, like a shell. It's, it's, who, who built the dome? I don't know, and I don't at the moment give a damn. Well, we should. will not know until we get the damn libraries. Uh, Richard. That's not true. How would we, we know without finding the original source material left on the place where the structures are of who built them and why? Left by whom? Because Again, I that's irrelevant. No, it is relevant. No, it's not. We can't know. For evidence. How can we know? You keep how can we know who built how can how can we know who built any of the stuff we're looking at? Go there. The question is not who and, built them. The question is whether they're there or not. You can tell that from the remote sensing imagery now. The question of if they're there is is over. So there is evidence. Of course there's evidence. You're looking at it. Now let's go to number six, okay? Click on number okay. six. This is again from the uh, Denuri, the South Korean unmanned 1,500-pound lunar robotic spacecraft orbiting the moon tonight, about 60 miles up. This is a beautiful, gorgeous, multiple color image taken through the polarizing filters of the polarizing camera. And what they've done again is they've mixed real data with artistic impressions. All right. Now, let me let me back out of that. You know, you that's very high res. You can take a look. Go to number seven. All right. Click on number seven. What I've done here is I've superimposed the Denuri color image on the background scale large color image from Artemis from a few months ago. All right. Notice that the brightness of the horizon is the same on both. Notice that the Denuri image posted as an inset at proper scale shows an extraordinary geometric glittering glass ruin, a shattered ruin rising up above the horizon of the moon and extending against dark space with multiple geometry, multiple layering, and different colors at the very top. And stars. Those are not stars. No, that's all glass. Because if you were looking at stars, you would be looking to the left and right of the roughly semicircular area extending above the Earth. Because what they did as an art piece is they took the color polarizing camera images, which, by the way, are real color. They have red, green, and blue. They're just polarized, which means they were looking for the domes in the first place. And then what they did is they, like with the black and white, they supered an Earth and the Denuri spacecraft as an art concept in the background so that you think it's just a piece of art. The problem is no artist depicting the moon anywhere on Earth would ever create something like this which matches so many of the Apollo images that I've looked at over decades. 
decades, both black and white in color. So they had to be looking at real data, and they again very cleverly posted it, like Kepler or Tycho Brahe, with their color imagery art anagram. So at the appropriate time, which of course is when they're given permission by NASA or by the US, they will say, we found this stuff first. And it'll I be think very it interesting. Like fantastic art. It's beautiful. I think but it's, it's not, it's not. It's real imagery as a background to the art. Well, and I'm not and I, I'm not quite sure that the Earth is art. The spacecraft, yes. But the yeah. Earth, if you look carefully, the Earth, the glass of the glass tower is mm -hmm. rising up in front of the Earth in the image, which is crazy because A, it shouldn't exist, and B, if 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 some artist is putting an Earth in a fake sky, why would they do all the right things to make it consistent, given that nobody is going to believe it anyway? Mm -hmm. In fact, you can well, see, I, if you I look carefully, say again? I can see that it's the Pacific region and the contour of China and... Uh, yeah. Well, and of course they're going to have China prominently displayed. All our mm -hmm. maps show the North American continent and the mm -hmm. USA prominently displayed. That, that chauvinism is totally, all they had to do is wait if it's a real photograph of the Earth for the Earth to turn around and for China to be visible. Yep. My point is, my, say again? I just muttered moving along. You're, you're, you're both belaboring a point there. Artists will do whatever they do to get the picture to look the best. But that means they have, to have access, they have to have access to a real model. Are, Richard, you know this as well as I do, that from NASA, and this would extend to Denuri and, and ESA and everybody, and everybody else, uh, they will give the academics that are doing technical papers better copies of pictures than are normally released through the mainstream channels, and which then get covered with little uh, overlays of arrows and descriptions and things like that. But what's underneath, and this is exactly what you're doing, looking at the Denuri pictures, that's what they did. They used good, real pictures. And they, they knew that they didn't have to explain them on site, so people would take anything that they thought was curious as just an artistic expression. I mean, you're perfectly right. It's the perfect cover. Pictures. Well, you're, you're reinforcing yeah, what not, I'm... It's not aimed at something. It's just there. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, wait. And, and we're basically running, uh, running out of time, okay? <laughs> so, yeah, in fact, we have run out That's of time. That's I was saying, moving along. Hang on, yeah. everybody. We've got plenty of time. That's why the other side of midnight has hours and hours and hours. So, everybody, hang on. Oh, I'm having a technical not glitch. Anymore. It's only got one left. Technical yeah. glitch. <laughs> Okay, here we are. Sorry about that, guys. You are on the... I could not do that. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Do we have Tim yet, Keith? What, last thing.
Midnight.com Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment for your endeavors. Eight cents an episode, two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this uh, uh, Saturday night, Sunday morning here in the Land of Enchantment. It is now May 21st. I was trying to think a while ago why May 20th was ringing a bell. Oh, I know why. It's May 21st. May 21st is when Robert John Kennedy, 61, our plan with Apollo to go to the moon. That's right. So we're now officially... In what anniversary would it be? 61. 61 years since that time. 61 from 2023 is what? I don't have a calculator here. 62. So it's 62 years. Yeah. Wow. No, 62 is the year, 61 years since then. You're right. Absolutely right. Yeah. Okay, well, moving on. Okay, uh, Ron, since we can't seem to find Tim, either Erdogan is censoring everything or he's having technical issues or he dropped dead from exhaustion after his five-hour road trip, um, I wanted to go to another item because this is really interesting and the appropriate segue to where I'd like to take us now, which, of course, is Mars. I'm sure there will be a big sigh of relief. If you look at number eight, Okay, Um, the Chinese have had very mysterious success or non-success with their uh, combined rover and uh, orbiter on their Mars mission, their first Mars mission. Um, For a long time, like maybe a year, uh, 
the Americans who were photographing, of course, Mars with uh, uh, MRO, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, have reported that the uh, lunar rover did not appear to move. But a little while ago, um, you know, a few weeks, they published, and that's what number eight's about, a scientific paper where they claim to have found water, evidence of very, very recent, geologically speaking, water on Mars in the form of liquid rain, rivers, you know, flowing, uh, you know, melted stuff. And they say, which is really astonishing because they're the only one so far claiming this, that it is somewhere between 1.4 million and 400,000 years ago, which is like yesterday and totally in opposition to the standard planetological models of, you know, published by NASA and the Japanese and others about, you know, activity on, on Mars. And it completely puts the idea of recent activity like Sidonia, which is in roughly the same time frame, like half a million years from our alignment, you know, uh, dating. It suddenly makes all of what we used to think of, the mainstream, about Mars in a totally different light. What are your thoughts? What's to say? The uh, water isn't on the surface because if you look at the, in the really obscure physics that deal with such things, theoretically, there could be, there could be surface water. Well, wait a minute. They're, they're saying the – they, hang on. They say they see surface features that could only be caused by eroding surface water flowing, causing erosion of the ground. Where it well, is NASA's now. they saying that for 40 years. No, they've not. They've never yeah, said – not, not in terms of this dating. NASA's dates for flowing water on Mars is typically billions of years ago. The fact that the well, Chinese – the, like the, the fact that the Chinese shortened that by a factor of a thousand, a million five to half a million, million point four to four – in other words – it's yesterday. It completely changes the geophysical context of Mars and activity and atmosphere and livability, et cetera, et cetera. And they're absolutely number one on the runway. Well, two or three years ago, NASA was showing pictures of a crater taken about a year apart that showed Erosion due to water. That was their explanation. So that there is liquid water on the surface of Mars. No, now. no, no, no. Not contemporary. Yes. They were satellites that they took from the Mars orbiter and they compared them and they said that this trench could only have been dug by runoff water. But runoff yeah, when? I don't think they meant lift. It's all they in the, in the dating, yeah, Robert. year apart. No, 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 no. Publishing has nothing to do with the dating the time frame. I can publish two papers a year apart and have two different dates on them for when geological activity occurred. It has, it has nothing to do with the publication. That, why are we talking over each other? Because you're not listening. No, you're not waiting for me to stop. <clears throat> okay. okay, stop. I'm saying that the Chinese publication claiming that water was on Mars yesterday, geologically speaking, 
within the time frame of my astronomical dating of Sidonia is a stunning, shattering, geochemical, geological, geophysical revolution in Mars studies compared to everybody else. Because everybody else, starting with NASA, says the last warm, wet, rainy epoch on Mars was billions of years ago, not just not a million. True. But That's the revolution. Ago. That's the breakthrough. That's the, what are they up to? Yeah. Gentlemen, well, uh, I have a relevant it's... picture about that. The, uh, a geologist friend of mine looked at this picture, and that's why I left, the, uh, left it in there. I have one black and white picture. It's the first one, as far as I know. And okay, hang on, hang on. So, shows... so we want to go to Ron's pictures now, right? Yeah. Okay, and let me introduce them. It happens them. to be the first one. Let me introduce them properly. For those who are new, what you yeah. do is you log on to the banner, click on the other side of midnight on the internet. That will take you to the guest page. Under the banner on the guest page, you will find my name and Ron's and Robert's and Ruggiero. Click on Ron's name. And that will take you to his section of Radio with Pictures. So look at number one. What are we looking at? Yeah. Right. Uh, the black and white picture, the upper left is the original frame uh, as posted. And it's got that annoying mesotint look to it because it's one of the new ones from Curiosity for the past couple of years that won't show us any color. And they give a, ha- they give a half-assed explanation about how this is a... Uh, uh, it's embedded in there, and if you use this special software, you can turn it into color, and uh, nobody seems to be able to do that, even someone who's professional and actually does work for them, who I can't. I'm not going to mention his name. You, you've all heard of him before uh, because I don't want to involve him in something he's not, you know, first in line for. But it's uh, he can't. He says, no, 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 that's not the right software. It wouldn't work. So anyway, to the upper right – Oh, you mean our friend in California. Why can't we mention his name? Well, because that was a specific comment, which was not mainstream, and I consider him a mainstream guy, and I don't want to get him in any trouble. Uh, he, uh, but he, uh, so just, you know, perfect. Some, okay, Richard knows who he is. Too. I like Somebody sourcing. He knows Putting out evidence without names and sources. All right, then drop the evidence. I never give away somebody's name if I don't know if it's okay. To me, the image looks like like it's simply been desaturated because it is not. um, No, blow it it up big. Look at all the grid. Wait, 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 wait. On my screen, I need a magnifying. Okay, I, I see the grid. Okay. Yeah, okay, that's what they all look like now instead of the colored pictures that we paid for with our tax money. Yeah, okay. okay. So they're playing right, fun and games. The upper right picture, yeah, the upper right picture, uh, I got rid of most of it so that you can at least see what it looks like there. And uh, so then I, and then there's a close-up at the bottom of a, of a part of it up near the top of, you know, the major feature on there. And my, the f- comment from my geologist friend was, looks like some very good example of cross-bedding, you know, which is a sedimentary effect. Of I would agree, together. which means you have to have okay. water and sandstone and stuff like that. Sure. Now, look, look at the upper left corner of the enlargement part, you know, the bottom section there. Eh, it looks like Does something that, uh, that might be manufactured. That little yeah, curlicue. Yeah, it, like it looks like a bent. 
Yeah, a little bent nail. Like, well, you can actually page. enlarge it. If you click on it, you can make it bigger. Of course. So, well, not always. Nothing's of that's, course. That's always a good idea with mine. You know, this looks – actually, uh, there seem to be a few little things around that are more mechanical looking than sedimentary. Right. Well, we're not going to talk about my theories about wood on Mars tonight because <laughs> you'll start yeah you'll start yelling again. Uh, but uh, move it now. Moving on to the next one. See, this is what I have to do. Is where, that, that one is recent. That's the top section of the full frame. There's more of the same one there. It's a recent picture, so you can find it from their has one of their has cams. Do we know which? We must know which rover. Pers- Perseverance. Well, I didn't know that. Uh, I asked. Yeah, okay. Well, looking at it at this in this scale, I thought this is one of the most perfect tricks of light and shadow things I've ever seen. Because upper center, it looks like there's a there's a Boy Scout standing there casting a shadow, looking at these holes in the ground. Yeah, the problem is the yeah? scale. You know that 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 upper that upper right that upper right circular thing that's been made by one of the drills um, in the surface of the rock. <clears throat> it's how they scour the surface of surface veneer or yeah. or what do they call it the varnish desert varnish to get yeah. in inner material so obviously that cannot be Probably a boy scout with a with a backpack that's obviously the edge of something i'm much more intrigued right it's something that's a few inches high well let me let me do it it's my the, go, uh, go, but go yeah, for the, it. the go problem for it. is that hole wait wait that hole is out Side of, and if you look at the full frame, you can find it on, you know, NASA's site. Uh, the, um, uh, if you look at the full frame, the rover never got anywhere near there. It can't, you know, the the uh, it would leave tracks and parts of it it couldn't get over. So and it can't reach that far. So that doesn't seem like that one was made by the rover. Wait, either. wait, wait, wait. You but mean in any case, you, the one on hang the on, left? Hang on, hang on, hang on. The one with the white. Ron, Ron, please be sensitive. If you go by all, most people are listening on the radio, they're not even looking at the pictures. They won't look at them until they get home or they have something else or maybe two weeks from now or whatever. <clears throat> I'm trying to explain. I'm aware of that. I can just, I can I'm, I'm to... trying to understand huh? myself. The, your little Boy Scout is looking at this circular depression, which you say, based on the wide angle, which of course should have been posted, is not the... Uh, uh, drill or uh, one of the drills from the rover. It's too far away, seem and, to be. and there are no tracks leading up to where you'd be close enough to lower the drill that way, right? Right. Even I, like I said, if you look at a full frame of that, uh, be nice to have the full one. frame. So anyway, the numbers at the top. I like to make people work a little bit instead of showing them nine versions of the same thing. That's just a, I never have enough time. The uh, the white the white that you see there is uh, the some particularly hard, very white shiny something that occurs on Mars a lot. I don't think it's a mineral thing. I think they're like pieces of tiles or something. And when they get down to that, they can't penetrate it. They've tried before, and it it's very shiny and it usually washes out the picture if the light catches it straight on. The fact that it looks like a little Boy Scout is just indicate whatever that is is sticking up a little bit from the ground, a couple inches. Now the one on the left, which looks like an anthill, sort of. Oh, the one. It you actually mean, looks. Like you mean the feature, the object? Yeah, the, the other hole, the other hole. Which well, is it's a hole a on the mound. 
It's it's basically yes, and it's the mound basically is cut in square. It's yeah. basically a mound, <clears throat> which almost looks like a solidified liquid because it's got a wavy, you know, shape and and kind of outline. Looks like something mm-hmm. dropped <clears throat> that's very um, uh, coagulated. It's got a lot of little substructure, like it's very 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 lumpy. It was kind of like molasses, and then it was dropped and it froze or it solidified. And then there's a conical hole in the top that's about half the size of the mound, and none of it looks like anything you'd expect to find on Mars. None of it. Right. It's certainly nothing that the certainly nothing that perseverance could do would cause that. Not in terms of uh, a large drop of something with a hole in it, with a ragged edge. Now the other thing on the upper right that looks like a like a, like a drill mark, but you say now okay. have you actually measured that Percy could not have done this? Yes, in the way that you measure with your eyes, looking at a number of pictures, because they're all taken at about the same distance away from something um, that you can tell when the focus is different. Uh, the I mean the depth, you know, the where they focused it to. This is not. Uh, it's just one of the Hascam pictures, and they don't adjust that much. And, uh, well, Hascam pictures of, are know, taken the, relatively close to the rover, so I don't imagine mm-hmm. that you can prove this was not. To me, that looks identical to all the other circular uh, drill marks that I've seen when they collect samples. Kind of. Well, okay, everybody that is looking at the picture page, uh, if you jump to number four, there's an old picture from uh, Opportunity. Four. Okay. Yeah. We we are skipping three. And We're skipping three, right? Not for only for a moment. Okay. I'm just making a comparison here. Uh, the uh, yeah, and that was taken by opportunity, and that is the reason that it's nice and clear is that opportunity and spirit only had a black and white camera, so they had to do things the old-fashioned way and take a red, a green, and a blue picture, and they even had better nano with. Uh, filters for the red, green, and blue than they use on the newer ones, which are all scanned, you know. Anyway, there's that, there's my infamous drain thing in the lower part of the picture. You know, that's very true. This one's true color, uh, not weird color. And what the hell is that? It looks like the, it looks like a fitting on a drain in the sink. And there's a, there's a half a dozen of these. Well, it even has geometry and on the ma- left-hand side. It's got little ridges with with rectilinear no that that looks it looks like some kind of gasket sticking out of the surface yeah yeah it's metal uh, it looks metallic at, at twelve o'clock and twelve o'clock and six o'clock they're where they had fasteners and nine o'clock is the geometry actually there's geometry all around and the center is so bizarrely tinted compared to the rest of the image. Yeah, well, this one has a cover on it. The other, if you want to see what it looks like inside of there, uh, the upper to I'm, the right, I'm, I'm to the left. I'm looking at the brownish center of the of the ring, the manufactured ring. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, and I'm saying that if you look up above it and to the left, you will see a whole bunch of somewhat haphazard holes, which may have been done by the rover trying to emulate. Oh, it, it definitely was rover. Yeah, that's the rover drill on uh on uh, uh what is it uh opportunity opportunity and they've tried several yeah, but different look what, 
Well, they well they went in a circle, yeah. and then they put the final one in the middle. Yeah, and all that did was show that this is a somewhat transparent material. Remember, they had what's called surface. a rat, which was it was basically a steel brush. Mm-hmm. So it looks like yeah. they used the rat to brush, and they mm-hmm. did a circular setting: one, two, three, four, five, with a sixth one in the center, very hexagonal. And they found. Yeah, and so instead of snow or ice, it looks more like a fiberglass cover over over some rocks underneath because there's something behind it, you know. Uh, anyway, that's just a little mystery. Uh, I, I'm waiting for for somebody to come forward and say, oh, no, no, NASA can explain those brass rings. You know, yeah, well, not so far. Uh, anyway, back to number three. The uh, That's very recent, obviously, from uh, Sol 739 for Perseverance. It's in the number, folks. First three, first four digits. Um, the uh, and in the lower left corner of it, there's more in that scene. But I first looked at the piled up rock there, and I said that's some sort of sculpture. And I, I for the life of me, I can't figure out what it's a sculpture of. But there aren't enough pieces. But in the lower left, that's a foot. That's a foot from a statue. It's a left foot. Go ahead, count the toes. You know, look at the style, which is very Vedic. Uh, that's what I'd say. I know Richard well, looked at it. And I would said, say no, that maybe, but I don't know. I would yeah. say it's a plausible. Uh, the thing I'm looking at is the mechanical ellipsoid with the flat flange running, you know, toward the toward the bottom of the on the ground, sticking out in front. Mm-hmm. That looks like some kind of metallic yeah, inclusion in a in a softer substrate behind it, rock or something that may or may not have been sculpted. Uh, right. Whatever it is, it does not look natural. No. And the rock behind it looks like there's a ball bearing embedded in it. You see that one? Almost like an eye with yeah, a ball. Yeah, something. Yeah. You know, those, Robert, those, those perfectly round balls pop up uh, embedded in lots of things. There's more than one. Sculptural. Oh, there's a whole field of them. There's a whole bunch of them there. And they all look like like, like they're inclusions and they're eroding out of something. Yeah. I read that they were made of hematite. And that was one of the proofs that NASA had way back when... uh, Oh, you're talking the blueberries. No, they're not. Mars berries. The blueberries are, are, are berries or some kind of organic. They're not. Well, they're not. Yes, yeah. well, I don't know about. I don't have any blueberries on here, so I can't. Marsberries. Marsberries. Um, uh, okay. Yeah. The point is, all the point of all of these was uh, initially, <laughs> originally, because uh, Robert started this. He sent me a link to an a science article of all things in uh, the Daily Mail, which is the only real newspaper out there at the moment, even though it's online, and. Um, it was. It had a bunch of NASA anomalies, and I thought, well, that's odd because it's an. It was a NASA contribution. I said, why is NASA posting something in the Daily Mail and it didn't show up on any of their pages that I was able to find? Anyway, uh, the um, thing that they had was uh, reminiscent of some that have been in the past, and then uh, the Daily Mail updated the article, and I can't. They have already changed it, so there's no there was no link to send to that one. I mean, I have the original link, but it wouldn't take anywhere useful. You know, they've updated the article a couple of times. It's not their main thing, but they did do this. 
But in the write-up that NASA has about that item, um, they made a big deal out of the fact that the pictures were taken on the 1st of April. And I thought, okay, it's an April Fool's Day joke because I got it like a week later from, I think, Joseph Farrell. Uh, and, uh, but it you know, came from the Daily We're not I'm talking about any picture. Oh, okay. Ron, we're not talking about any picture on the site tonight, right? Well, yes, some of these are. Some of these are. That's the point. When they upgraded it, when they updated it, they added all this other stuff. And so going through that in proper form, these are not their pictures. The, uh, you remember the shiny object a few months ago that Perseverance came up with? Yeah, sure. And uh, fact, yeah, you well, there's, your, there's a good You look. have it in your number five. Yeah, and that's what it really looks like. And then to the uh, on the right side of that is two more pictures showing the same object from other frames. You know, one that's the same. Well, the frame number is right underneath it, but then there's an enlargement of it below, and you can see it shifted around a little bit. It's strange that they don't look. Strange that the overall appearance there isn't exactly the same one both. But um, yeah, they lie a lot. Um, so that uh, that was one of them. Another one was the lower part of the next picture, number six, I guess, um, that is um, at the bottom of it. You've got that thing like a snake, two snakes actually, rising up out of the ground. And that was the thing that I believe led the um, article in the um, – no, that couldn't be. That's too it looks like um, deformed rebar. It looks like, like, re- it looks like eroded, rusted metal. Yep. Yes. Both it definitely of looks like metal, and they said that it was some sort of concretion, like it's some sort of. Uh, this is strange that this happens on Mars. Apparently, sediment, soft sedimentary type rock, uh, whip themselves into weird fused geometric together shapes. by an unknown unknown and, substance that, and then it completely erodes away, leaving the adhesive or the cement. Uh, sticking up. This is and called a convoluted uh, pretzel model. Yeah. You know, the yeah, color, I, well, I think the, what it really beats. Wait, wait, wait. Robert, go ahead. Yeah, greenish blue color yeah, well, I think it reminds me of, of copper. It could be talk. corroded copper, yes. Yes. Copper. Yes. 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 Very much. So that, that's why the Statue of Liberty is yeah, green. Yeah, exactly. Statue of Liberty. Statue yeah. of Liberty green. Yeah. These look like two corroded copper, heavy bus bar cables for electrical power. Right. Massive cables. That, that too. Yeah. They're yeah. not just thin wires. Is, uh, NASA says they're cement. Well, NASA can, <laughs> NASA can, say, NASA can say anything. Does it make it true? Again, yeah, Well, I'd say evidence. it looks like proof that you could... Yeah. Well, we now, know, we now know a new something to mine for on Mars, which is adamantium. Obviously, uh, Wolverine's claws, or maybe vibranium, maybe, maybe <laughs> Captain America's shield. Uh, but there's some there's some mystery metal that apparently is found on Mars that they use to glue rocks together. Uh, I, no, not, come on, let's uh, stay now, in the realm it, of, of, of of sanity. Well, I'm trying to show how absurd their explanations are. The upper picture is just some other picture from, again, the numbers on there somewhere. Uh, At the very uh, top on the left. Uh, okay, that was. Yeah, that was way back on Curiosity's uh, 401st uh, uh, day or sol on Mars. And if you look at that, it looks to be, when you look closely, made out of metal. 
but it's just all corroded. You're talking the top image of the two. Yeah, the top image of the two. Yeah, the okay, so again, it's very, it's, very, it's very greenish, which kind of looks like corroded yeah. copper to me. Yeah. Look at the trench. Right. Look at the shadowed area. Go in and blow it up. It looks like so. Left side looks like it's got a a coil or one of those old um, bus fuses, and the right side has this rectangular and a cross in it, like a, a piece of metal that just dropped into the little into the hole there, into the trench. Again, it looks like copper to me. Oxidized. Copper. Again, ninety nine point nine 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 percent of humans do not know what ruins certainly technological ruins look like because we haven't had technology on earth long enough for most people to be familiar to what happens when our civilization falls apart. You're looking at what it would look like. Anyway, we are basically, hang on guys, we're at the bottom of the hour, so we must go away. We'll come back. Don't worry. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland and we shall Return. Neurologists are stunned. Well, we don't want to do that. Oh, no. We don't want to do that. And welcome back, everyone. Last half hour to go on this Saturday night. Now Sunday morning, we're playing uh, theme music from Destination Moon, the uh, great uh, George Powell epic 1950s movie built around the script by Robert Heinlein, which had really state-of-the-art special effects and accurate science. And the only thing that got wrong was it had the first expedition to the moon 
a private corporation mission, and they didn't use chemicals. They used an atomic rocket. Other than that, it's very, very accurate and eerily predictive of things we are discussing now. Anyway, back to my guest. Uh, let me ask Keith the question here. Do we have uh, Tim with us yet? And let me tell some of my screens so I can tell. Uh, well, good morning, Richard. I am, ah, Mr. Saunders, you are uh, here. Hello, Jim. Okay, morning, let me let me let me give Ron a couple of minutes to wrap up, and then I want to go to you, Tim. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Ron. Oh, thank you. Yes, I'm so happy that I stunned the urologist. But um, <laughs> the, the, uh, the uh, probably even okay. Number five, I mean, because Robert brought it up talking about the um, uh, last one. The uh, that's from the Molly which is the camera that they can't make into black and white pictures, even though they might want to on curiosity. Uh, it's their supposedly their highest res, res camera. And Richard looked at this and said, it looks like a book, which I'm sure a lot of people did. Um, the, but if, well, if NASA, published, it, sort of... NASA published on their website this picture, and they said it was a Martian book, obviously tongue-in-cheek. Right. And I looked at it closer, yeah, and right. I thought, well... That might be an explanation, but now that I see this version, uh, I'm thinking it's more technological, more like sheets of mica or something electronic that's mm -hmm. eroded away and all you see is the most resistant parts and materials left. But those flat sheets, you don't get them in nature. Not usually, not unless it's mica. You're right. And well, notice the uh, just the serrations, et cetera, uh, the outline, the edge of it, of that piece sticking up, and compare it to the top part of the other picture that we just talked about. That's why I just okay. to that one from what Robert. See how see how it's, it's same things going on there. Same kind of um, you know the one is green, the other is brown, but it looks like something similar going on. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Well, it looks like technological erosion. Now, um, you know, Tim yeah. has been a, had a hard time joining us. He made a five-hour drive. He made a special effort to be there's here. There's only two more pictures, Richard. I can get done them in 30 seconds. I, actually, there's many, many too, more. But I'd like, to get them, I'd like to get them over with, so then you free reign. But, okay. I think we're going to bring Tim on. Can I do the last two pictures? Nope, nope. Tim, we gave your background before. Okay. You've been... You've been driving and listening. Um, what are your thoughts? Well, you guys have uh, covered quite a lot of ground already. <laughs> so you got almost well, half an hour to tear us to pieces. Well, I'd love to. <laughs> I'd come earlier if I knew I could do that. That's the spirit. Uh, well, I'm, I'm fascinated by the photographs. And the one that we're looking at right now, uh, Ron, is look at number five, or Ron, Ron's photo number five. I mean, on the left yep. side, the, the, the portrait image, there's that silver foil piece there with a very regular sort of dot matrix-type structure or, or indentation on it. To me, that, that screams of 
um, sort of soundproofing. Of, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking yacht, I'm thinking ship. Mm. But in engine rooms, you know, put a isolation foam, and then we put a final covering of like an aluminium type foil with perforations, which looks almost exactly like that foil that's on in that photograph that Ron is showing. That's what so, I thought it was. Mm-hmm. See the different yeah, shiny object. The difference between the perforations, the, yeah, drill the, holes. Yeah. Um, remember, the NASA model is this is a piece of stuff from the landing from the parachute system, the suspension system. It's not indigenous to Mars. I frankly am much more interested by all the amazing structures, Ron, around this little piece of whatever it is, because those are not rocks. Those are manufactured, you know, rusted pieces of metal, very heavy metal. Like giant camshafts. Exactly, exactly. There you go. You can see the rust. And the teeth. The, yeah. Uh, yeah, look uh, at them. Yeah. Triangular. Well, they okay. didn't show you that in their picture. Yeah, they, uh, this is right. a wider view. I had, to, I had to do a slight mosaic to get it all in there. Well, you uh, can the, see the same big object in the lower left of the left-hand frame. In the upper right-hand frame on the upper left, except at a very different angle, something like a uh, 45-degree right. difference. And it stays the same. But that beautiful curve you can see, that that camber, that's not that, those aren't rocks. No, 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 no. No, no, no. I don't think so either. Anyway, uh, Tim, please continue. Okay, please. Okay, go ahead. Well, I, I, where to start? I mean, we're in the, in the last twenty-five minutes of the, the show, and uh, I've listened to a lot of different topics and little. Um, well, pick something. Things, but I do want to circle back to everything. Um, okay, so you mentioned Artemis. You mentioned uh, potential deliberate delays from SpaceX launching and so on. I think the elephant in the room there to talk about is how the... Uh, I think there's a huge correlation between the FAA granting a license to launch, uh, which definitely was after the Artemis launch. So I would have thought there was a huge amount of collusion between the FAA and NASA launching Artemis. I agree. And do you know that the big hang-up for Musk to launch after the disaster of of the first one is going to be getting the clearance to launch the second time, and the FAA can drag its feet, given the excuse, as long as they want. I'm telling you, it was done by Musk deliberately as part of the ritual team. Well, quite possibly, but he has a selection of, of ships to launch, and some of which... Yeah, but uh, he only has one launch site, and the FAA will not let him launch. In fact, they're, they're now under legal review from environmentalists because they let him launch the first time. And we know how True. things can be tied up in the courts, which is a great way to delay everything until NASA is first back to the moon. Why is NASA even pushing Artemis anyway? I mean, it's like a great big dinosaur. Oh, it's it's obviously going to go obsolete because there's too much political capital on the part of, uh, oh, what was his name? He was a senior senator from, I believe, Alabama. Uh, Richard, Richard, oh, what was his name? He's the one that basically wrote the rules for how NASA's next launch vehicle had to use 
parts of the shuttle, which by the time Artemis flew, was like, you know, 20, 30, 40 years old. Exactly. I mean, it's great. It took off. It works. But but it's, look, know. it's so expensive. It's like $4 yeah. billion dollars per launch. That's insane. Nobody it could is. sustain that. So the NASA yeah. Artemis program is a cover for when they quietly move it over to to Starship and Bezos, and that's going to be how we're going to do the moon the real way. Because, again, Musk's super rocket is 45 times cheaper and carries a much bigger payload than Artemis ever can carry. Yeah, and, and each, each iteration of the Starship that they're building is significantly better than the previous one as yep. well. So that's yep. the ones that lined up in, in what they call the rocket park or the scrapyard or whatever it is, I mean, they're, they're already superseded. So why not just let them light the touch paper, let them go Well, what, and... what, what they need is a decent political interval where they can quietly segue from one mission concept to the other. And no one will raise an eyebrow except us. Because most people so are, are for, go ahead. So, I was just think. so are we waiting for a different political background? So are we waiting for the next election? Well, remember, the first Artemis launch is going to be literally at the time of the 2024 election in two years. Okay? The, the, the real uh, um, Musk launch, the SpaceX launch of even tourists around the moon is a pipe dream at the moment because the first launch kind of blew it up. They blew it up and they FA will not grant a future launch until all kinds of problems are solved to their bureaucratic satisfaction, which means they can run out the clock. So regardless of how good Musk and team are technically politically, NASA is going to be first because ritualistically they have to be. So it seems the only way he can get a, a shortcut is to go back and do a sea launch because if he's in international waters, I guess he doesn't need FAA uh, permission or does he still need FAA permission? Oh, no. He, well, wait a minute. You mean if he launches this, this heavy booster from the Cape as opposed to, to uh, Texas? Well, that, that's sort of like a halfway house because they already have you know, uh, provenance. They have permission there, I guess, to launch a... a a vehicle, but I was just wondering the only way he can break out of all of these political rules and red tape and FAA and, and all the rest of it is, is to is to go back to launch from an oil rig. I was going to say, if, if he were to buy an oil rig and I modify do. it, off, we well, talked we about this like years ago, yeah. beyond, beyond the whatever the limit is, 12 miles, he'd mm. be free to launch. I'm not sure about airspace. There may still be some necessity to check in with people because you can't launch any old time because you'll run into a satellite in Earth orbit, that kind of thing. So you need NORAD cooperation. So, you know, he can't really operate outside the system. So he might as well be in the system. And then it's all a matter of who gets their first, who gets their second, and what sets of eyeballs, which have not signed non-disclosures, are going to be orbiting the moon with humans looking at the amazing glass domes through the proper polarization filters. 
it's does obvious scare. they don't want he promised. Him. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, he's obviously, in, he's obviously in the system. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, he, he likes to be this sort of renegade freedom of speech guy, but he basically does all the things he tells us the, that we shouldn't do. Um, <laughs> yes. I mean, he, he, he could probably talk a little uh, launch space out of the uh, Europeans from that Guiana site. French Guiana. Yeah. Well, but remember, there's only one national global space program, and we'll call it for want of a better name, the deep state. Musk looked like a renegade maverick outside. Then he got the Artemis lunar lander contract, which put him inside. And I'm telling you, the the botched up launch was so the FAA would have an excuse to delay until Artemis, with its officially sanctioned astronauts, get to land on the moon first. In a SpaceX lander. Well, I'd like to throw another picture in because it was a gift specifically for anybody out there that's looking at these that might uh, want something of their own. Uh, The tall, skinny one, I'll just put it that way. The number? Uh, That's from Curiosity. You mean number eight? Do you really have Well, people have to have the number to find it. It's number eight. I'd like, Ron, which number? Yes. We're looking at at Ron's uh, item number eight. Number eight, okay. The tall, skinny one. That happens to be formatted as a screen paper for a phone. Okay. It's, I, a, I, it's I, an I, obviously very really excellent the, so the ad, perseverance image on Mars. Uh, yeah, yeah I'd be quite, I'm actually quite proud of it because it was taken, I think, around sunset or something, the original pictures, and the, the original is horrific. I had a hell of a lot of trouble stabilizing it. But they, right in the middle of it, you'll see what looks like the door handle of an old Jeep. Yep, sticking up. Sticking up out of the top. <clears throat> yeah, and, and I don't and, know what and, that and is. And the handle part is pointing to the right to a rock which looks like it's got all mm-hmm. kinds of inscriptions on one side. And sharp edges. Oh, that one's, yeah, that one's totally enigma, think, enigmatic even to me. I don't know what that is, but it looks I like think a piece important of, thing, uh, what was the block. There's a, there's a solid pillar, a block, rectilinear, smooth on two sides with uh, two corners and an in inscription of the, on the top. Further back, yes, I know. No, right in the center, yeah. right in the center, just going toward 9 o'clock. Yeah. Oh, there's all kind, look, at the, look at the triangle-shaped bright thing toward the upper left, about center image toward the left, to yeah. the left of the object in the center Ron was talking about. That's mm-hmm. got grooves parallelisms, sharp edges. It's got a flat, look at that flat surface. Those are blocks. It seems to be the flat, yeah, it seems to be the small side of a box. Yeah, those are, those are either boxes uh, or blocks or, you know, and, mm-hmm. and then there's other geometry further away, like those two white linear areas, right. left and right of the center. Mm-hmm. Those look very geometric with layers. You know, the tilt tilt of the objects on the left side, the slant, compared with the circular of the crater, it looks to me like the crater was an explosion that blew all those things over, uh, knocking them over to the left. Very possible. That's a good good assessment. Can I get two cents in? I want to get two two cents in. 
on Tuesday morning at 3 a.m. Eastern. I'm going to be on Coast to Coast with George Nuri talking about JFK and UFOs. And Dr. Wait a minute. You went away. Why did he go away? One way or another, I'm going to get that last picture in. Okay. (laughs) Dr. Gary Nolan of Stanford University, that's my item number eight, says that aliens are here 100% on Earth and that the U.S. is reverse engineering uh, crashed UFOs. He's a Ph.D. Interesting, he's a pathologist. And I know that NASA has uh, hired pathologists to do analysis of things they find in the crashes. And the final thing is I just sent an item to Keith. It's from The Sun, a British newspaper of great worth. And got a video of somebody took of a UFO over the moon. How coincidental. And thanks to John F. 888 for that. Thank you for sending it. A very timely uh, submission. So if you'll get that on, you'll be able to see a video taken just recently of a UFO mm. over the moon. Okay. Uh, I, I really Thanks. wanted to give Tim as much time, given our difficulties of connecting before. But let's get let Ron have one last picture. Which picture do you want? Okay, I want the uh, one that's uh, I think is it labeled that way, or did I just have a number on it? It's from the SuperCam. It's uh, let's see, I have to count down on my list here. Are we number talking nine. the, the number nine? Number nine. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, and you can see from the curvature at the top, this is, you know, from one of the yep, supercam. Yep, it's a supercam. So supercam images. Which is a basic and, telescope uh, they, on, on the rover. Yeah. Which, it's, it's about a uh, 10 times magnification telescope. Right. And uh, in the upper center, in the center, I try to center interesting things. In this case, that's obviously where they were aiming it because to the middle of it anyway. You can see from the ring. Uh, there's something that's, well, I could say it, it looks like a mechanical mushroom. I could say it looks like Perseverance, it, the, the Perseverance's penis fell off, uh, or it could be some sort of large You're, you're talking about the cylindrical but, white object between the two rocks, where you're looking at with the, the wires sticking with the out, wires the, sticking out the bottom. Yes. Yeah, it's obviously a mechanical object. And there's another one just to the right of it yeah. on that so-called rock. And then there's conical artificial things at the top that are gray, with colors, they look almost yeah. color fringy, like maybe there's iridescence. No, it's more artificial stuff. So it's a nice picture, though. Okay, that's uh, yeah. And uh, the other ones have to do with color. So uh, it's, um, if if you want them, I'll talk about them. If I want to uh, give some more time to don't. Tim. All right, you're on every yeah. show practically. Well, yeah. Ron. Let's talk to Tim. Tim, I, I have, haven't been on I, the air in qu- like two months. Uh, me neither. I have a question, Tim. What did you think of the Chinese <laughs> discovery that there water on Mars yesterday? Liquid flowing corrosive water. Yes, I was I was speechless with the folly of it. What they do you think mean? They think they can lie about anything. I, well, I'm about to tell you. They think they can lie about anything. They can brag about anything. And if they bluster hard enough, people will believe them. I mean, I lost all – they lost all credibility to me, not in their hardware, but in their presentation to the public when they posted those pictures that were obviously studio shots because they didn't have properly prestigious enough pictures of their lander. Okay, so Ron is a, 
no vote. And you and know thinks, what I'm talking and about. He thinks the they Chinese posted phony are, pictures. Once you post phony <clears> pictures, <throat> you're uh, you're off my Christmas list. When then the, all right. So Ron's vote is the Chinese are lying about the water. Tim, what do you think? Yes. Well, I've been uh, traveling a little bit, and I haven't really gone into the full depth of this, Richard. So I'm I'll just be shooting from the the hip if I say something, and, and therefore it's just it's speculation. So is there any context you can offer very quickly? Well, the, the reason is the rovers, the Chinese, a year ago. <clears throat> this is what Ron's talking about. They put a model of their rover called Zerong against mm-hmm. a close-up image of an ancient arcology shot by Curiosity. And we talked about it a great deal, and we showed the pictures, and that was my political foreshadowing that the Chinese were going to try to unveil ancient artifacts on Mars. So they get yes. to Mars, they land, they land next to, in the MRO images, which are stunningly interesting geometric and then they run at warp speed which is probably tenth of a mile an hour in a direction away from the nearest ruins and they keep Mm -hmm. running from every ruin and then their rover does nothing on the surface for like a year and we know it's not technically dead because it moved Jim it just moved so we know they pause what were they pausing about at the end of this year-long pause, where everybody is speculating, has the, has the Chinese rover and orbiter died? Are they having problems? It sounds to me, it looks to me like some kind of political infighting. Remember, this was the mission where they literally had a fist fight among some of the scientists that was kind of <laughs> leaked out. Yeah. Anyway, then they publish a paper mm-hmm. where they blow the doors off the standard NASA history of Mars in terms of water because NASA says water on Mars only flowed on the surface or rained from the sky billions of years ago and the Chinese are saying it could be less than half a million years which puts it right in the Sidonia realm of our analysis of the dating of the ruins at Sidonia they have put a nuclear atomic tactical weapon loose in the field because you can't abrogate all of that NASA history, you know, in print and just say, oh, they're just lying because inside there are huge discussions. So it looks to me like the Chinese are again choosing an Emily Dickinson route to basically attack the foundation of the entire NASA natural Mars model. In code, yeah. Well, I believe the Chinese water uh, discovery is is true. Say again. I believe the Chinese uh, discovery of rec- uh, water recently, more recently on Mars, is true. I too, too, from totally yeah. separate. Well, of course, the Anunnaki said that there was water there 450,000 years ago, which is in exactly lakes. the same time frame. Yeah. Yeah. Which means. The, the godless communists are telling us the truth, and the Christian NASA people are lying again. They're not Christians. They're Freemasons. There are a lot of Christians in NASA. <laughs> and the Chinese are still lying. Of course there was water there. We don't know the timeline yet. Well, I mean, wait. as Keith just, con- have you as read, Keith just contributed, it's in the ancient scriptures that have it was you a half read, a billion years ago. Have you read the Chinese paper yet? 
Which so, Chinese paper? I've the read one on the water. Yes, I read it last week. Okay. And you claim they, uh, what, they're just claiming without evidence. Their evidence is very academic basically, and yes. technical, but I think it holds up. I find them astonishingly mm-hmm. politically brave to say what they've said when the, the wisdom, the ritual, the mantra, you know, the orders are don't ever mention a habitable Mars within a billion years. Well, that didn't any nothing they said indicated that the place was habitable. I mean, I'm if the one. If you have liquid water, it's habitable. Liquid you know, water. Mars holds a special place in the Chinese uh, mythology and ideology. Their term for Mars, the name of Mars in Chinese, is Hongxing, which means red star. So they're really wedded yeah. to it. And I well, think remember they, the Chinese believe they came from, they came from heaven. Yeah, they out there. They're yeah. and and well, they are huge on ancestors. I think mm-hmm. the Chinese are obliquely saying the ancestors of Chinese were Martians and they could yes. have lived a million and a half years ago. Yes, and I'll add one more note. In the interplanetary phenomenon unit report after the Roswell crash and after the dissection of the aliens, one of the statements they that the government made was they suspected that these aliens had created the Asian race. Well, there you go. Uh, As McLeod yeah, would have said. dangerous ground there. No, it's hey, not. Look, it's not dangerous. It's in black and white in the oh. planetary phenomenon unit report from Roswell. It's a military government. The um, Central Intelligence Group of the United States Army wrote it up. So... I didn't Tim, say it was untrue. Tim, I said it was. I said it's a dangerous subject to bring Timothy, up. Timothy, Timothy, given that Hello. you had yes. problems getting on this morning, we're going to do another one of these. I'm hoping you'll come back and we'll have much more time because you will not have had to leap out of bed and drive five hours to get on the show. So I apologize right. for yeah. lack yeah. of adequate time to talk about a whole bunch of things. And we are basically out of time. So, Tim, last words. Last words. Okay, so 400,000 years sounds a lot more plausible. Doesn't it? Water on Mars than millions of years ago. Uh, I don't have anything to back that up, but it just seems to fit the model better. Well, I have something. You mean? In in a future show, I'm going to bring on a professional meteorologist who is going to talk to us about, guess what? Why the skies of Mars right now look like the skies of Earth. I want to thank all my guests this morning, Robert Morningstar and Ron Gerbron and Timothy Saunders. We will do this again. What I'm fascinated by is at the very end, after a very interesting program, we came to a consensus. Oh, my God. What can happen next? Cats and dogs living together? Oh, well, until tomorrow night. When we tackle the monarchy in Britain, same time, same bat channel, remember, third star on the left. Good night, everyone.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.